BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. The Ford F-150 truck drives smart design forward. The standard 12-inch productivity screen helps you get what you need done too. And the available pro-access tailgate improves access to bed and cargo and utilization of the bed, including when towing a trailer. Together with a wider bumper step, it's easier to access the bed and load in tight spaces. An available ProPower onboard serves as a mobile power source, providing up to 7.2 kilowatts of power to charge a bed full of electric dirt bikes or run an entire job site worth of tools. I'm still driving my 2016 F-150 truck and 90,000 miles in. As long as I keep it clean, it honestly still looks brand new. I've taken it down snow-covered forest service roads, taken it out camping, put a ton of miles on it on the freeway, had five adults in the cabin for long trips, and it's been great everywhere. Super dependable. I still love the way it looks, nice and rugged design, but with a super comfortable interior. And I'm still very happy with the quality sound system and heated seats. And since I bought my 2016 F-150 truck, the list of standard amenities that make a truck feel like a luxury vehicle have only grown. Tough this smart can only be called F-150. Find your local Ford dealer at Ford.com. Pro access tailgate available starting spring 2024. See owner's manual for important operating instructions. When you think of an airline, what do you think? Do you think of booking your tickets online, then getting annoyed when you realize you have to pay uh, for extra baggage? Do you think about how there seems to be less legroom than there used to be? Maybe you think about how you hope you get bumped up to first class so you don't have to sit to some uh, next to some sweaty mouth breather who's going to spend the whole time chatting about some vacation they just took that you could care less about, that kind of stuff. I doubt you think about the CIA and drug smuggling. Air America was a passenger and cargo airline originally established in 1946 by Whitling Willauer and former U.S. military aviator Claire Lee Chenault. Initially called Civil Air Transport, its mission was to provide support for nationalist Chinese forces fighting the communists in war-ravaged China. But that would change when China fell to the communists and suddenly the Asian communist playing field got a whole lot bigger. Now China was looking to support communist parties wherever else they could take hold in Southeast Asia. The red spread. And the U.S. was not happy about it. And the CIA would be sent in to fight communist forces, and they would buy out civil air transport to help, changing the name to Air America. Air America often appeared as if it were running regular old civilian flights, while also engaging in covert military operations. Pilots for Air America made dangerous rescue missions, picked up mysterious passengers, and were told they should fly without identifying documents in case they were picked up by enemy forces. And they were sometimes shot down and picked up by enemy forces. Air America would function in Southeast Asia through the Korean and Vietnam Wars, performing tasks like infiltration and exfiltration of U.S. personnel, the provision of direct and indirect support of U.S. Special Forces, and the conducting of photo reconnaissance missions on Viet Cong activities. In addition to these standard tasks, Air America pilots, who for the most part were unaware that their employer was the CIA, assisted in search and rescue missions for downed U.S. pilots and also in various black op activities. Neil Hansen, was one such Air America pilot. In June of 2019, Hansen described his experiences flying Air America missions during the Vietnam War, explaining that he and his colleagues were shadow people and that operations in Asia were irregular and unknown. We'll tell part of Neil's story today. 
Amid numerous conflicts, all of them in attempt to fight various communists, quickly gaining additional footholds in Southeast Asia, Air America pilots also became heavily involved in the CIA's secret war in Laos, probably the most controversial part of its history. During this conflict, the agency used the Hmong people to fight communist Pathet Lao rebels. Patet Lao rebels, excuse me. The Hmong people depended on poppy cultivation for hard currency. When swaths of land were captured by communist rebels, the poppy operation could not raise funds due to the lack of ground available to land aircraft transport their opium. The CIA would step in to help, effectively becoming drug smugglers. Air America was known to be flying opium as late as 1971. Hmong village leaders claimed that their 1970 and 1971 opium harvest were bought up by Vang Pao's officers and flown to Longcheng on Air America helicopters. This opium was probably destined for heroin laboratories in Longcheng or Vientiane for GI addicts in Vietnam and also for the American streets. The CIA has denied much of this, but is it true? And does it really matter if it did happen? Does covert equal shady if the end justifies the means? Had operations like this not have been carried out, how far would the red have spread? All of this and more on today's conspiracy theory-fueled, super-classified, fight-the-communist, good-boy Bojangles edition of Time Suck. This is Michael McDonald, and you're listening to Time Suck. (laughs) You're listening to Time Suck. Happy Monday, Meat Sacks. I'm Dan Cummins, suck nasty, Amish psychi- uh, psychiatric orderly, Will Smith's life coach, CIA flight attendant, uh, black strap molasses wholesaler, and you are listening to Time Suck. Hail Nimrod, hail Lucifina, uh, try and keep your shit together today, Bojangles, and glory be to Triple M. I'll keep the announcements short this week. I feel like they were longer last week. Uh, check out the Bad Magic store for this week's tea. Pretty cool classic text lockup, very vintage and earthy. Visit badmagicmerch.com to check out this and more with new merch drops come, Excuse me, coming every week. Uh, if you're looking to uh, uh, find a way to help those in crisis in Ukraine, uh, please visit liftinghandsinternational.org, the Bad Magic Charity of the Month this month. I'll reveal our donation amount next week. I recorded this one quite a bit in advance so I could take a, a family vacation. Uh, a little, little, not much sleep last night, but drank, but got, got, got everything done in advance of vacation. Uh, drank a shitload of Black Rifle coffee to stay up late. I'll keep my mind sharp to get this suck done uh, and uh, get ahead on some other shows. And was thinking about how Black Rifle founder Evan Hafer, former CIA contractor. Huh. What does he have to do with today's op- operations? With covert shit. Did he put bugs in the canned mochas I drink to find out what I was talking about while I was putting all this together so he could have me killed if I said the wrong thing? Seriously, I thought that was just a, a weird connection. Uh, next stop on the Symphony of Insanity Tour, uh, Tempe Improv. Come see me in Phoenix this weekend, April 15th and 16th. And that is it for announcements. And now on to our main topic. Today we're going to be talking about, uh, of course, Air America, secret airline run by the CIA from the 1950s to the 1970s. First, we're going to look at the secret nature of the CIA, including how its secrecy has fueled conspiracy theories, uh, rightly so. Uh, Some theories which have turned out to be true. Some theories uh, which have turned out to probably not be true. Always hard to say for sure with an intelligence agency that operates so well in the shadows. Uh, Then we'll briefly take a look at some of the other companies that the CIA has owned or is alleged to have owned over the years. Next, we'll get into an overview of the conflicts uh, in Southeast Asia that the CIA and Air America would be, you know, took part in. Uh, Sort of, sort of, we'll do a sort of global play-by-play before we get into specific missions and stories in today's Time Suck timeline. 
And because I just can't help myself, probably going to mention the Russia-Ukraine conflict uh, situation at some point because a lot of today is about the Cold War. Basically, all of uh, most of today is about the Cold War. And the Cold War uh, is, as we're currently being reminded, not not really over. It might not be exactly uh, democracy versus communism anymore, but it's still alive and well and being played out on the world stage right now. Let's begin. If you've never heard about Air America, I, I would think you're probably in the majority. Uh, it was a secretly owned airline. I had not before uh, you know this uh, topic came up on our list. Uh, it was a secretly owned airline amid a massive amount of other highly secretive endeavors the CIA was involved in during the Cold War's opening decades, many of which have not come to light fully to this day. No surprises. The CIA has been pretty tight-lipped about the various operations they've engaged in over the years. I mean, they, they've had to be. They're an espionage agency. Pretty damn hard to spy on people if you're blabbing about it to whoever asks. That would make for a really shitty spy spy agency. Uh, the CIA, by its very nature, has to be very covert. And, and, I, and I think sometimes we forget that, right? They're hiding information from us. Yeah, they sure as shit are. Uh, they're supposed to. That's literally their job. Spying is not spying if it's just out there in the open. We just hope that they're doing it with our best interests in mind. Hopefully, uh, they're not going to kill uh, any more presidents. At least not any more good ones. Come on! Seriously, though. Uh, there's literally no point in having this agency around if it can't plan and carry out missions, clandestine missions, that it does not notify the American public of. The classified nature of many CIA operations has led people to form conspiracy theories, of course, about what is really going on in Langley, Virginia, location of CIA headquarters. Some people, a lot of people, as you learn uh, covering various conspiracies over the years, they just don't do real well with secrets. Right? Anywhere there are secrets, their paranoid worldviews lead them to consistently assume the absolute worst, oftentimes a cartoonish level of worst. Right, The new world order, satanic pedophile rings, you know, closed to non-member organizations like the Freemasons or closed to the public uh, you know, and reporters events like Bohemian Grove. Yeah, they drive people fucking bonkers simply due to the fact that most of us just don't get to know what's going on for sure. And that leads to wild speculation. And that doesn't mean that the wild speculation, no matter how improbable, you know, can't be true, but it doesn't mean that it is true either. I personally don't think the CIA is part of some type of international deep state Illuminati organization chemtrailing us so we can't breed and controlling our minds with 5G thought manipulation waves or anything of that nature. But I also do think that they're probably doing something shady, right? Probably multiple shady things right now. They're habitual moral line crossers. To be fair though, part of their job to walk right on the edge of what many consider ethical, right? The CIA first became the target of conspiracy lore uh, in the late 1960s when many Americans began to question the official government finding of a lone gunman in the John Kennedy assassination, right? President JFK. And yes, I am one of the nuts who truly thinks the CIA had fucking way more to do with killing JFK than they will ever admit. I don't think we'll ever fully know the truth. No matter what gets declassified, uh, they're never going to spill all the beans, in my opinion. If I had to put, you know, my life, bet my life on whether they were directly involved in his assassination or not, I would quickly bet my life that they were involved. And I know, I know, some of you think that that is not a good example of critical thinking on my part. Maybe it's not. I have to agree to disagree with a lot of you there. Uh, too long to uh, go into all of it again in great detail. I've already covered it in the past, but I just think that they had motive, opportunity, uh, definitely had the capability probably justified it by thinking that getting rid of JFK was uh, in the best interests of national security when it came to the Cold War. In then-secret memo from 1967, a CIA official expressed dismay 
that conspiracy theories about the assassination endangered, quote, the whole reputation of the U.S. government and had frequently thrown suspicion on our organization. He recommended, uh, I love this, uh, using the agency's propaganda assets to refute critics' arguments. Yeah, that's how you get the public to trust you again. Uh, Propaganda. That only works if the public literally never finds out that you push propaganda. You know, once they find out, uh, trust is irreparably damaged. And the CIA has definitely pushed propaganda on the American public. We talked about that in Suck 175. Declassified military documents. Operation Mockingbird. Right, started in the 1950s, the CIA recruited journalists, editors, uh, students in order to write and uh, promulgate uh, false stories. The CIA's stories were pure propaganda. Their employees were paid huge salaries in order to promote fake news. That for sure happened. Right, they recruited leading American journalists into a network in order to uh, promulgate the CIA's views. Allegedly, more than a billion dollars was invested annually for several years into this propaganda program. The full scope of the program has never been declassified, but enough has been declassified that we know it happened. Not conspiracy lore, right? Documented, uncovered, and admitted to be true in congressional hearings in the mid-1970s. Despite the CIA's best efforts to keep shit covered up, the percentage of Americans who believe that the U.S. government routinely conspires to subvert the Constitution uh, grew in the late 1960s and 70s, thanks largely to the declassifying of this and other CIA operations. 1975, Senator Frank Church, right here from the Gem State, Idaho Zone, born in Boise. Fuck yeah, bro. Uh, He formed the Church Committee to look into some of these conspiracy theories. And in the course of the investigation, uh, Church and his committee documented at least eight CIA-sponsored plots on Fidel Castro's life, as well as assassination plots on, uh, you know, numerous other foreign leaders. The committee also published official reports on the FBI spying on and straight up trying to ruin the reputations of civil rights leaders here in the U.S., Martin Luther King Jr., um, you know, uh, Malcolm X. There was a CIA's illegal uh, domestic surveillance operation known as Operation Chaos. Early versions of NSA uh, surveillance programs on the American public. Operation Chaos, in particular, was super fucked up. Uh, When Tricky Dick, President Richard Nixon, came to office in 1969, existing domestic surveillance activities were consolidated into Operation Chaos. Of course they were. Nixon loved to spy on people. Have we ever had a shadier president than Nixon? Or or is he just the one that got fucking caught the most? Uh, Operation Chaos kicked off by using CIA stations abroad to report on the anti-war activities of U.S. citizens who were traveling or living abroad. They should have spied on Americans using electronic eavesdropping, e.g., you know, they bugged their phones, bugged their hotel rooms, residences, uh, followed them, had undercover contacts, befriend them, and more, all justified by the Cold War. Make sure Americans abroad aren't conspiring against the nation. Praise Bojangles. You know, he fears the red spread. But then by 1970, the CIA started doing the same shit on American soil. Now they were doing shit the Cold War could not justify. Right? They crossed the line. Uh, They're infiltrating leftists, countercultural groups with no discernible connection to Vietnam or communism. Uh, Groups operating within the women's liberation movement, for example. They spied on the Israeli embassy. They purchased a a trash collection company to collect documents that were destroyed from the Jewish embassy. It's pretty fucking smart. Uh, shady. Uh, they did similar shit to uh, former suck subjects like the Black Panthers, episode 126. Uh, they went after the Young Lords, Women Strike for Peace, Students for a Democratic Society, uh, any other group that they felt were anti-establishment. Basically, any group that seemed like it might lean in an anti-establishment direction was a possible target for illegal surveillance. By the time an invest- investigative journalist, Seymour Hirsch, working for the New York Times, exposed them in 1974, 
Operation Chaos contained files on 7,200 Americans and a computer index named 300,000 American civilians and approximately 1,000 groups. Imagine with how far information gathering abilities have improved thanks to advances in computers since 1974. How many names are in secret CIA databases right now? I would be shocked if my name at this point was not in a database. I might even have a file now. Uh, this episode might get, might get another page or two tossed into it. Uh, Project MK Ultra sucked subject back on August 25th, 2017. Another example of the CIA definitely doing some seriously shady shit to American people. MK Ultra, you know, mostly about truth serums or serums, basically mind control. Uh, could we figure out how to extract any information we need from anyone we capture if we could dose them with the right kind of truth serum? Uh, this project ran from 1953 to 1973. Included shit like uh, dosing unsuspecting U.S. citizens with LSD just to basically see what the fuck would happen to them. Uh, not not debriefing them later. Just, you know, at a bar, fucking put some stuff in someone's drink and oh, what's going to happen? Also, prisoners, mental hospital patients uh, given LSD, uh, other drugs, sometimes unknowingly, sometimes heavily pressured to participate so that scientists funded by the CIA could manipulate subjects' mental states and try to figure out if they'd concocted this magical elixir. That once given to say, you know, some spy they'd caught would allow them to extract any and all information that person held. And they would know that that information was good intel. It was truth and not bullshit. Now, obviously, that would be an incredibly useful tool in the spy game. Also, obviously, wildly unethical to experiment on people like they did. Uh, congressional committees in the late 70s or in the 70s, not late 70s, uh, just in the 70s, sorry, uh, exposed CIA drug testing programs like MK Ultra, possible U.S. government involvement in the, uh, you know, JFK, Martin Luther King assassinations, numerous other morally questionable or repugnant covert programs. In a memorable phrase, Senator Church suggested that the CIA had never received presidential approval for its worst abuses and had acted like a, quote, rogue elephant on a rampage. But of course they never received presidential approval. They were given the ability when they were conceptualized uh, to plan and carry out covert operations without White House knowledge uh, due to for uh, plausible deniability. So if they got caught, the White House wouldn't get their hands dirty. As Congress revealed more and more CIA operations, some Americans came to suspect that there were other uh, as yet undisclosed government con conspiracies waiting to be discovered, like darker shit. And can you blame them? Senator Church received handwritten letters from people around the country who wanted him to investigate allegations ranging from the CIA's hidden role in Watergate uh, to its spiking of the New York City water supply with mind control drugs, chemtrails, all that stuff. Despite the widespread concern of citizens, the only substant uh, substantive reform to come out of the Church investigation was the Foreign Intelligence Surveillance Act of 1978. That act established procedures for the physical and electronic surveillance and the collection of foreign intelligence information between foreign powers and agents of foreign powers suspected of espionage or terrorism. But does anyone really believe that the CIA followed those procedures? Get the fuck out of here. Subsequent legislation like the Protect America Act of 2007 stripped this act of its power anyway. Excuse me. It'll probably always be, you know, be hard to tell what's conspiracy theory and what's uh, not when it comes to the CIA. They'll never be fully trusted by the American public, and they probably shouldn't be. One conspiracy that is unlikely to be true, but has a lot of widespread support among the tinfoil hat crowd, uh, rumors surrounding the CIA's involvement with the HIV AIDS crisis, right, the epidemic. 
Since the CDC, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, first reported the HIV-AIDS epidemic in 1981, rumors have persisted that the deadly virus was created by the CIA to wipe out homosexuals and African-Americans. Uh, seems like every time a new disease has shown up in the past uh, several decades, there are those who believe the disease was man-made. Others insist the government deliberately injected gay men with the virus during 1978, uh, hepatitis B experiments in New York, San Francisco, and Los Angeles. Still others point to Tricky Dick, who combined the U.S. Army's Biowarfare Department with the National Cancer Institute in 1971. All of that is probably untrue. Uh, though the co-discoverers of HIV, Dr. Robert Gallo of the National Cancer Institute, Dr. Luc uh, Montagier of the Pasteur Institute in Paris, don't agree on the exact origins of HIV-AIDS, most members of the international scientific community believe the virus jumped from monkeys to humans sometime during the 1920s in the Congo Basin. But did the CIA help accelerate its spread once discovered? Maybe. I don't know. I could go on and on uh, with other examples of concerning things the CIA has done or maybe has done. But today we're talking about Air America, a company that would become a secretly owned CIA corporation. One of numerous companies that have been exposed for being uh, fully CIA owned or at the very least a, a front for CIA activities. A business can provide a pretty good cover, right, for espionage. Uh, whether it's uh, something like a bank, an insurance company, newspaper, you know, for uh, agents trying to gather information, carry out other clandestine activities. We might have talked about a CIA-owned company before, but uh, I can't remember really thinking about this. How weird to think that some businesses are CIA fronts or CIA-owned. Makes me think about all the little counterculture coffee shops I popped into uh, to get some uh, writing done over the past, you know, two decades. Like how, how, how uh, I guess, you know, one of them, more of them, one, more than one of them could have been bugged. How the CIA working there could have been, uh, uh, or how the people working there could have been CIA informants. Makes me think about comedy clubs, right? Such important places for free speech, dissent. You know, there's a lot of uh, kind of comedic protest that goes on in comedy club stages. What if some of them are CIA fronts? What if the manager is a CIA informant? What if some podcasts are bought and paid for by the CIA? What if Reverend Dr. Joe Paisley is a CIA informant? What if I am? What if maybe Michael McDonald is? talking about here she rises to her apology anybody else would surely know what would they know he's watching her go where's she going who's the fool me the american public what kind of power Reason away our basic constitutional rights. Seems to be. It's an illusion. What, what's better than nothing? Hmm. <sighs> what kind of place did she have in his life? Why didn't she have to think twice? Why is he watching her go? Is he spying on her? Who's the fool? I don't know. The fuck, what the fuck is he trying to tell us? No, seriously though. Uh, thinking about all this too much could lead you to pacing around in a, in a bomb shelter basement of yours, you know, some kind of bunker with reinforced concrete walls, uh, maybe a signal disruptor to keep the government from spying on you, uh, tinfoil hats to keep the uh, government uh, allied aliens from reading your thoughts. <laughs> this, this, this kind of stuff can make somebody go crazy. I get it. This, uh, you know, we talked about schizophrenia last week, paranoid schizophrenia. Paranoid schizophrenia and deep diving the CIA 
probably not a good combo to, to ever do. Uh, there have been plenty of conspiracies, uh, sorry, plenty of companies. Now my brain is just locked in conspiracies uh, besides American Airlines or America Air, Air America, Jesus Christ, uh, that have been either known or suspected CIA front organizations. For starters, there have been uh, other airlines and transport companies, Air Asia and Taiwan, Arizona Helicopters, uh, Bon Am Airways, Civil Air Transport, Continental Air Services, Intermountain Aviation. Well, Civil Air Transport, I mean, it's just another name for the same one. But there's uh, Premier Executive Transport Services, uh, Seaboard World Airlines, uh, Southern uh, Air Transport, uh, you know, just to name a few. For more than 50 years, the U.S. and Germany, um, they spied on foreign governments. This is, this is pretty brilliant. Uh, through a Swiss company called Crypto AG, uh, a firm secretly controlled by the intelligence agencies. This is crazy. This company sold encryption devices, machines supposedly built to send secure communications and keep communications out of the hands of spies. But these devices were then used to spy on the crypto's clients. Right? Customers included the governments of Pakistan, India, Syria, Saudi Arabia, even the Vatican. And they did this for over 50 years. And uh, I just have to get this out. I was listening to the, uh, the Wombat's new album during a lot of this uh, week's research. Excuse me. Uh, Fix Yourself, Not the World. Great album. And while working on this section of notes, uh, the song Worry came on and the chorus refrain is, uh, it's not paranoia if it's really there. <laughs> it says it over, over, again, over and over again. It's like, ah, coincidence? What are the Wombats trying to tell me right now? Stop spying on me, CIA. Again, this shit could drive you crazy. Uh, anyway, Crypto AG, not the first, certainly won't be the last firm uh, run by US spies. Another one was called Brewster Jennings and Associates, fake law office. Uh, the CIA set up the Boston-based Brewster Jennings and Associates in 1994 as a front for officers, including Valerie uh, Pl- uh, Plame, ex-head of operations in the uh, Iraq Joint Task Force. Uh, Plame later outed as a, uh, or Valeria Plame, uh, Plame later outed as a spy in 2003, listed the company as her employer for tax purposes, although the Boston Globe described it as nothing more than just a telephone number and a P.O. box. Uh, directory listed Brewster Jennings as a legal services office with annual sales of 60000 and just one employee, CEO Victor Brewster. Uh, the CIA also used uh, this fake company to investigate an alleged foreign intelligence ring, including Pakistan's uh, ISI, which was attempting to recruit moles to obtain U.S. nuclear secrets. The international cat-and-mouse spy game is fucking fascinating. The CIA, not the only intelligence organization to have fake companies. Uh, like the CIA, Israel's spy agency Mossad has been using front companies for decades. Uh, Encoda, which claimed to export Ethiopian beef, was a wholly owned Mossad operation from 1955 to 1964. Uh, according to Yossi Harrell, a former military intelligence officer who managed the Encoda factory in, uh, oh man, Eritrea. He described Encoda as an Israeli, Israeli intelligence station in Africa. Uh, I probably, I think I mispronounced that uh, Ethiopian name. I, too many, too many pronunciation words uh, that I need, or words I needed guys for this week in this 30,000 <laughs> word set of notes. Um, but he described Encoda as an Israeli intelligence station in Africa, saying in an interview, we had a huge arms cache. We were only uh, a cover in Mossad deals. When they had to send someone to an Arab country, they did it through us. We transmitted mail to spy in Arab countries uh, in our ships or transmitted mail to spies in Arab countries in our ships. So genius, rather than try to sneak sensitive information onto somebody else's ship uh, or onto somebody else's plane. What if you own the ships and planes? One less variable to worry about, right? Great way to help control the situation. Okay, now before we get into the meat of today's episode, Air America. I can't want to call them American Airlines earlier. (laughs) That'd be funny if American Airlines this whole time has been a CIA front. Uh, Let's start with with an overview of the conflict that Air America would take part in. 
This was the most fascinating part of this episode to me, uh, or rather the multiple Asian Cold War-related conflicts it was involved in. Though many of the operations would take place in nearby countries like Laos and Thailand, the two enormous military conflicts Air America would work through in the 20th century were the Korean War and the Vietnam War, also known as the Second Indochina War, also known as the Vietnam Conflict, since war was never really officially declared by the U.S., but get the fuck out of here, it's war. The U.S.'s aim in all this was to stop communism from spreading throughout Asia beginning in the late 1940s, lasting throughout the 70s. And towards that end, they would end up fighting a lot in Laos and other neighboring countries, not just Korea and Vietnam. The U.S. military, the CIA, and Air America, all present in many parts of Asia, started in the late 40s. How do the conflicts they were involved in fit into the larger scope of international 20th century military history? Well, it all starts, if we can even really put a definitive starting point on any of this, with the end of World War II and, uh, you know, European colonialism in the region. After World War II, the disintegration of Britain's global colonial empire transformed global politics. Before the war, Britain maintained colonies all over the world, which provided them with valuable raw materials, additional manpower, uh, and numerous strategic bases. By 1945, however, numerous fights for independence in these colonies and changing markets for the goods they provided had made them an expensive liability instead of an asset. And the U.S.'s opposition to imperialism had made colonialism less viable in a politically globalized world. Same was true for France, which in the 20th century had French Indochina, a large colonial area made up primarily of Vietnam, Laos, Cambodia, and also the now Chinese territory of Guangzhouan. Decolonization in the region was a complex, often bumpy process. Each colony's unique societies presented different political pressures, which sometimes led to violence, ranging from riots to massacres. This happens all the time around the world, right? A nation is given autonomy. Awesome. Yay. But now, who the fuck is going to run it? When does any society ever all agree on who should be in charge? Never. Almost never. Uh, some of the people in these nations wanted to be democracies. Some of them wanted to be communists. Some of them wanted to be capitalists, right? Some wanted to return to monarchies that had either existed before colonial rule or had kind of existed during colonial rule as figureheads and puppet regimes. Former colonies were now suddenly tasked with how they, how they were going to organize their new countries as these countries fought for independence from colonizers. And France, they didn't want to totally let go of control. They wanted to maintain a semi-colonial structure, which complicated things more. The whole area quickly became, in the wake of World War II, a huge fucking mess, politically. Due to the influence of the nearby Soviet Union, which was aggressively looking to expand communism in the wake of World War II, a bunch of Soviet-funded communist political parties and militias took hold in these former colonies, promising freedom for their colonist, uh, you know, colonialist oppressors. Communistic freedom. So, freedom with the big old fucking asterisks. Freedom to love communism and do what the state tells you or rot in a state prison where you'll be tortured. I mean, re-educated, you know, or you'll disappear, a.k.a. be executed. Uh, as you can imagine, the U.S. not too eager to let this happen. The first colonial war was in French Indochina, where a power vacuum caused by Japan's removal after wartime occupation gave a unique opportunity to the communist uh, Viet, uh, Viet Minh, the League for Independence of Vietnam, as the group's full name would translate to in English, a nationalist communist Vietnamese party that formed in 1941. When in 1946, the French army tried to regain the colony they'd lost to the Japanese in World War II, these communists proclaimed themselves a republic, and they went to battle against France. Right? When Mao Zedong's communists won the civil war in China in 1949, this greatly hurt France's chances of regaining a colonial foothold in the region. We talked about Chairman Mao and Suck 238. 
1954, the French would be defeated by communist armies, winning with the help of new heavy guns supplied to them by the Chinese. And something similar was going down simultaneously in Korea. The Korean War lasted from 1950 to 1953, during which the communist North Koreans, supported by China and the Soviet Union, found, uh, fought the anti-communist South Koreans, supported by the U.S. Cold War in full effect. Imagine what the global map might look like now had we never fought it. How far could have uh, Joseph Stalin and his uh, direct successors and, and Mao Zedong have spread their influence? The Korean War began when the North Korean army invaded across the 38th parallel, the line of division between North Korea and South Korea that had been established after the Japanese occupiers were defeated in World War II. When the Japanese were defeated, the Soviets and the U.S. Uh, both quickly tried to establish governments on the Korean peninsula that were either Western-friendly or Soviet-friendly. An international battle for dominating global influence rose from the ashes of World War II before those ashes uh, were even done burning. Under President Truman, the U.S. joined the war against the communist North Koreans, not only to defend the South, consistent with the Truman Doctrine, but also to offensively liberate North Koreans from communism. Although the U.S. successfully pushed the North Koreans to their side of the 38th parallel, once the U.S. started to cross into North Korea, China quickly sent in troops to aid North Korea. God damn it! So hard for the West to push their influence around in Southeast Asia when both China and the USR, or USSR, two gigantic and powerful nations, were right there and not an ocean away. We had, we had a wee bit of a location disadvantage. President Truman didn't want to involve the Chinese, fearing a full-scale war, All right, began peace talks with the North Koreans on uh, July of 1951. Uh, the talks concluded in an armistice signed in July of 1953, which suspended hostilities, reinforced Korea's division at the 38th parallel, and created a 4,000-kilometer-wide demilitarized zone that has remained there to this day. Almost 5 million people died in the war, with more than 2.7 million Korean civilian casualties. Holy shit. More than 30,000 American casualties. Now, the civilian casualties in these uh, Southeast Asian conflicts are staggering and sickening. So much collateral damage, so much so... I think that many have a knee-jerk response to all of this. Jumping quickly to, we should have never gotten involved in any of that. What we did was terrible. Millions of innocent people uh, would not have died if you would have stayed the fuck out of their business. And that's true. But, and this is a huge but, South Korea would also now be part of North Korea. And we talked about the fucking horrific lives that people live in North Korea way back in episode 45. Approximately 60% of North Korea's population currently lives in poverty. 100% live in fucking fear. Fear of the state dragging them off to some re-education torture camp, right? Worshiping leader Kim Jong-un as a god is expected. And if you don't want to live there and you want to leave the country, well, tough shit. You don't even get to travel freely around North Korea, let alone leave it. Your life is rigidly controlled. It's awful. I mean, I think, you know, compared to, to life in any uh, Western nation, roughly 52 millions, uh, excuse me, roughly 52 million Koreans live in South Korea. Roughly 15% of them live in poverty, right? So they're doing much better overall. They have wonderful universities where they can study what they want. They have fashion, art, free media, uh, you know, innovation, a chance at wealth, on and on and on. Life is better in literally every way I can think of in South Korea compared to North Korea. They can travel around the country however they want. They can vacation out of the country if they want. You know, I think overall, the freedom of the 52 million people who live there now and the freedom of the additional tens of millions who live there between 1953 and now who have died before now do justify the overall death count of the Korean War. So important, I think, to zoom out, evaluate the big picture in situations like this, Look at the greater the greater good. 
right? Almost 3 million people died. That's beyond tragic. But how many people have lived free and fulfilling lives because of that war since? A uh, hundred million and counting. And also adding to that, uh, with no Western intervention in Southeast Asia, how many other nations would be communists today? How many more millions would live their lives oppressed under the rigid thumbs of totalitarian regimes, right? 50 million, 100 million, 200 million. Following the Korean War for the US and Southeast Asia was the Vietnam War. Like Korea, Vietnam had also been occupied by the Japanese during World War II. After the Japanese were defeated, the Japanese withdrew from Vietnam. And then Ho Chi Minh, a communist political leader, quickly gained control in North Vietnam while French-backed Emperor uh, Bao Dai retreated to the South. And we talked about all this in depth in Suck 139 on the Vietnam War. Today's episode has so many uh, companion episodes. Both sides signed a treaty in Geneva, splitting Vietnam along the 17th parallel with uh, Ho controlling the North and Bao controlling the South. But despite this 17th parallel agreement, many Vietnamese communists, known as the Viet Cong, began attacking the Southern government. Now the U.S. is worried about the so-called domino effect, right? believing that if one Southeast Asian country falls to communism, others will follow. It'll strengthen communism, not only in the region, but also globally. And I do think that was a very valid and real concern. And I know some people don't agree. There's theories that say it wouldn't happen, but I wouldn't want to let let it to chance. Due to this concern, under both the Kennedy and Johnson administrations, the U.S. sent more troops to support South Vietnam amidst Viet Cong attacks. In August 1964, the North Vietnamese attacked two warships in the Gulf of Tonkin. Kind of, but not really. And the U.S. retaliated by bombing North Vietnam and sending more troops to be stationed in South Vietnam. And yes, conspiracy lovers, I do know that the Gulf of Tonkin actually was a false flag event, like a for real, no sarcasm one. Documented. Not one with crisis actors and all that bullshit, but it was not the unprovoked attack that was sold to the American public to justify military involvement in Vietnam. NSA declassified documents in the early 2000s revealed this to be true. The USS Maddox was patrolling the waters just a few miles off the North Vietnamese coastline in the Gulf of Tonkin, locating and identifying coastal radar radar transmitters and navigation aids to make it easier for U.S.-backed South Vietnamese forces to attack North Vietnam. And while actively helping the South Vietnamese in the middle of a war zone, the USS Maddox fired warning shots at some approaching North Vietnamese torpedo boats, who would then fire back after they were fired upon, and then the Maddox would fuck them up. And then two days later, the U.S. would fire again at nothing. They misread some radar blips. They thought they were being engaged. They weren't. But now the U.S. is involved again in firing on the enemy, and that essentially was all it took to get the U.S. to officially join the war. They just misrepresented what happened. Well, they just lied and said that, uh, you know, unprovoked, they were attacked unprovoked, which was not true. Uh, The White House sold a story of the North Vietnamese attacking the U.S. and then the White House authorized a war against North Vietnamese without calling it a war. Then unlike the Korean War, which didn't get a lot of press coverage in the U.S., the Vietnam War became a massive hot button issue and anti-war protests condemning the government for continuing a conflict that seemed unwinnable as it went on, you know, uh, ensued. And maybe the U.S., you know, didn't win this war per se, but did participating in it help stop the spread of communist communism in Southeast Asia. Today, China, North Korea, Vietnam, Laos, the only communist nations there, other than Cuba, uh, the only officially communist nations in the world. How many more would I be listing right now if not for the Vietnam conflict? I don't know. I I I hope a lot of, uh, you know, Vietnam and Korean war veterans felt good about what they did over there. I hope that they, uh, you know, thought about how their sacrifices allowed tens of millions of people to live free. That's beautiful. And I think a lot of people like me understand and respect what was done, but I think a lot of people don't. Uh, After the 1968 election, President Nixon took over the peace talks, began focusing his attention on Viet Viet 
oh my gosh, Vietnamization. Vietnam. It's, it's a word he made up. <laughs> that, uh, I don't know how, how it's supposed to be pronounced. Vietnamization, uh, which meant withdrawing U.S. troops for Viet- from Vietnam and providing the resources South Vietnamese troops needed to continue the war without the U.S., in January of 1973, peace talks between the U.S. and North Vietnam concluded with the U.S.'s uh, complete withdrawal from the war. Two years later, South Vietnam fell to North Vietnam, and Vietnam became unified under communist control. As a result of this war, as many as 2 million civilians on both sides, some 1.1 million North Vietnamese and Viet Cong fighters did die. The U.S. military estimated uh, between 200,000 250,000 South Vietnamese soldiers died as well, in addition to 60,000 U.S. casualties, just under 60,000. So again, a lot of death. A lot of civilian death. Were a lot of those deaths unnecessary? Certainly. Uh, a lot of mistakes were made. But again, from someone who has never served and is just a student of history, war is routinely fucking messy. Always has been, always will be. More so, you know, when you go back into the past, when we didn't have the same technical expertise we have now. Not giving every action that occurred there a moral pass with a sentiment, but I hate when other people who have never fought like myself get real fucking judgy towards those who have and do some real easy um, hindsight, should have done this, should have done that, armchair quarterbacking, which is so easy to do when you're sitting behind a computer, uh, you know, just to judge people who are out in the jungle. Uh, refocusing now. These conflicts led a massive presence or led to a massive presence of U.S. forces in Southeast Asia from the end of World War II until the withdrawal of U.S. troops in the 1970s. And part of that presence was the CIA. And part of their presence was Air America. Okay, background info complete, you beautiful bastards. Uh, let's now dive into uh, a lot more of Air America's story in today's Time Suck Timeline. Right after today's mid-show sponsor break, full of sponsors that are probably not CIA deep state fronts. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. If you suddenly had an extra hour show up in your day every day, what would you do with it? Work out, sleep, read a book, play Fortnite, call your mom, take judo lessons, finally watch all the episodes of Shameless. A lot of us spend a lot of our time wishing we had more time. But why? Time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The bad news is that you're not going to get that 25th hour. But what you can probably do is reprioritize where you spend some of your time. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it with your time. This year, my health is more important to me than cranking out another stand-up special as fast as possible. So I canceled a tour, sacrificed that income, and decided to spend a lot of the time I just got back working out more, resting more, relaxing more, and enjoying time with family, friends, and just myself. And I'm so glad I did. I feel better than I have in a long time. And my BetterHelp therapist, Debbie, was very helpful in getting me to make the decision to pull back. Thank you, Debbie. If you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Learn to make time for what makes you happy with BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash TimeSuck today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash TimeSuck. After years of fine print contracts and getting ripped off by overpriced wireless providers, if you've learned anything is that there's always a catch. So when you hear that Mint Mobile wireless plans are $15 a month when you purchase a three-month plan, you're probably thinking, what's the catch? Well, there isn't one, really. They cut the cost of retail stores and pass those sweet savings directly to you. It's pretty simple. Mint Mobile is here to rescue you with premium wireless plans for just 15 bucks a month and no catch. 
All plans come with unlimited talk and text, plus high-speed data delivered on the nation's largest 5G network. And you can use your own phone with any Mint Mobile plan and bring your phone number along with all your existing contacts over. And in addition to saving money, like over a 50% price drop from what I was paying before, the network quality, in my experience, is better than it was with my old service provider. To get this new customer offer and your new three-month unlimited wireless plan for just 15 bucks a month, go to mintmobile.com slash timesuck. That's mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Cut your wireless bill to 15 bucks a month at mintmobile.com slash timesuck. Additional taxes, fees, and restrictions apply. See Mint Mobile for details. Thanks to Rocket Money, I canceled a membership to a gym I used to go to where I continued to pay a monthly membership for a couple of years after I stopped going. I didn't even recognize the charge. Rocket Money found it though, and it was canceled. Rocket Money is a personal finance app that finds and cancels your unwanted subscriptions, monitors your spending, and helps lower your bills so that you can grow your savings. Rocket Money will even try to negotiate lower bills for you by up to 20%. All you have to do is submit a picture of your bill and Rocket Money takes care of the rest. They'll deal with customer service for you. Rocket Money has over 5 million users and has saved a total of $500 million in canceled subscriptions, saving members up to $740 a year when using all of the app's features. Stop wasting money on things you don't use. Cancel your unwanted subscriptions by going to rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. That's rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. Rocketmoney.com slash timesuck. I still love peanut butter and jelly sandwiches, but I'd stopped eating them almost entirely a while back because the bread on top of the sugar from the jelly made me so sleepy. All those carbs causing me to want to take a nap after eating them. Enter Hero Bread. Hero Bread takes the fear of carbs out of bread, but still leaves you with that delicious bread taste. Hero Bread has 0 to 1 gram of net carbs, 0 grams of sugar, and it's high in fiber. It's also delicious and flavorful. The soft, fluffy experience you love when enjoying a savory breakfast burrito or mouth-watering cheeseburger. There is something for every craving, including sliced bread loaves, buns, and tortillas. And there are monthly small batch drops of indulgent favorites, like the 2 grams of Net Carbs Hero Croissant, or the 1 gram of Net Carbs Hero Cheddar Biscuit. I had a loaf of Hero Classic White Bread delivered last week. Soft, fluffy, and delicious. 5 grams of protein per slice, and it's high in fiber. And the best part? Hero Bread doesn't taste healthy. It tastes like bread. It's great. Don't give up on being a breadhead. Hero Bread is offering 10% off your order. Go to hero.co and use code TIMESUCK at checkout. That's TIMESUCK at H-E-R-O dot C-O. And we're back. Hope you didn't hear any ads for surveillance equipment. If you did, that wasn't a real sponsor. Damn you, CIA! You snuck in there! On to the Air America timeline now. Strap on those boots, soldier. We're marching down a time suck timeline. The history of what would become Air America began in 1946 as a company with a different name, Wing and a Prayer Airlines. Their slogan was, sorry if we crash, flying's really hard, and we're trying our best. Of course not. That'd be a terrible airline. Uh, the airline was created by Claire, uh, the airline created by Claire Chenault, and Whiting Willauer. What a, never seen a Whiting for a first name before. Uh, it was in 1946, initially uh, named the Chinese National Relief and Rehabilitation Administration Air Transport, shortened to CAT for Chinese Administration um, Transport. 
or Chinese aviation transport, Jesus Christ, uh, using surplus World War II transport aircraft, such as the C-47 Dakota and the C-46 Commando, uh, cat airlifted supplies and food into war-ravaged China back when there was a chance that China would not turn communist. And that would have been so great. Imagine if China was our powerful, democracy-loving, go-ahead-and-protest-if-you-want-to-buddy, uh, just, you know, ally. Our most, what, our most powerful ally. Oh, well, at least they tried. Such a noble effort. Uh, before we dig into their efforts, let's meet the founders of this airline. Uh, September 6, 1893, uh, Chenault was born in Commerce, Texas to John Stonewall Jackson Chenault and Jesse Chenault, formerly Jesse Lee. Man, dude was destined to be in the military. His dad's middle names were Stonewall Jackson. <laughs> how, how would you like to be burdened with the expectations that would come from that name? John Wilcox Rutherford, county tax collector. And what's your name, sir? John Stonewall Jackson Chenault. And what do you do, good sir? Military, I imagine. Perhaps gunsmith. Maybe our new sheriff. No, sir, I'm a florist. I run John Stonewall Jackson Chenault's adorable arrangements on Main Street. On the weekends, I design, clo- I design clothing for children's dolls. Uh, the surname is of uh, French origin. The French pronunciation is Chenault. Uh, but his family pronounced it Chenault. Because America, a nation where mushmouth is the norm. Thank God. Chenault grew up in uh, Louisiana towns of Gilbert and Waterproof. Quick side note on Waterproof. Because I was like, what? There's a fucking town named Waterproof. Waterproof, Louisiana. A uh, town that's still there on the banks of the Mississippi. Uh, right across the river from the state of Mississippi. Only about 700 people. Most of them poor farmers, agricultural workers. And ironically, I love it so much. Present day Waterproof is two and a half miles from its original mid-19th century location. Uh, having moved three times to escape floodwaters. That is fucking great. The first couple of waterproofs were flooded and not waterproof. The original town uh, named after a guy crossing the river, yelling to another guy, standing on a mound surrounded by floodwaters. Well, Abner, I see, I see your waterproof. And then it stuck. But of course, it's uh, not. I just, what are the fucking odds? The town named Waterproof will have to move several times because it got flooded. Uh, Chanel began mis- uh, misrepresenting the year of his birth as either 1889 or 1890 during his teen years, possibly because he was too young to attend college after he graduated from high school. And his dad added three years to his age. Clearly, he wasn't small for his age to be able to pull that off and uh, clearly uh, pretty smart to make that age, age leap. Uh, Chenault was a talented go-getter who attended Louisiana State University between 1909-1910, uh, where he trained uh, with the ROTC, Reserve Officers Training Corps. He and his wife, Nell, then moved to West Carroll Parish, where he would serve as principal of the Kilbourne School from 1913 to 1915. At the onset of World War I, he graduated from officer school at Fort Benjamin Harrison in Indiana before being transferred to the Aviation Division of the Army Signal Corps on November 27, 1917. Not much listed uh, in sources regarding what action he saw or did in World War I. He did learn to fly in the Army Air Service during World War I, though. Following the war, he graduated from uh, pursuit pilot training at Ellington Field, Texas, April 23, 1922. Remained in the service after he became the Air Corps in 1926. Chenault then became the Chief of Pursuit Section at Air Corps Tactical School in the 1930s. So he's uh, he's moving on up, not fucking around. In the mid-1930s, Chenault led and represented the first pursuit group of the Montgomery, Alabama-based Army Air Corps aerobatic team, known as the Three Musketeers. Death-defying aerial uh, acrobats, right? Thrill-seekers, pushing aerial maneuvers to the limit. Uh, pretty cool for his former students when he was a principal, to find out uh, he was an ace pilot now, I would think. The group performed in the 1928 National Air Races, 1932 as a pursuit aviation instructor at Maxwell Field. Chenault reorganized the team as three men on the flying trapeze. 
a little wordy, but okay. Uh, Chenault was promoted to the rank of major in June 1936, but then poor health, mostly hearing problems and chronic bronchitis, uh, disputes with superiors, and the fact that he was passed over as unqualified for promotion led Chenault to resign from the military on April 30th, 1937. But he wasn't done with planes or war. As a civilian, he was uh, then recruited to go to China and join a small group of American civilians training Chinese airmen. He was a private military contractor or operator long before companies like Blackwater made that job, you know, much more well-known. Chenault arrived in China, June 1937. He had a three-month contract, salary of $1,000 per month, charged with making a survey of the Chinese Air Force. Upon the outbreak of the Second Sino-Japanese War in August, Chenault uh, became an officer uh, chief air advisor. And it's, that war is pronounced Sino or Sino. Just so you know. uh, assisted in the training of new Chinese Air Force pilots and sometimes flew scouting missions in an export Curtis H-75 fighter. His duties also included organizing an international squadron of mercenary pilots. Fuck yeah. Sounds like the plot of some kind of Expendables type movie, right? Brad Pitt, Idris Elba, Nick Cage, Vin Diesel, Michelle Rodriguez, even though there weren't any female pilots, but you know, showbiz doesn't have to be historically accurate. Uh, Late 1937, the Chinese Air Force considered attacking the Japanese home islands with bombers launched from the mainland of China, and Chenault was advising. Chenault went along to the uh, Wujiaba Air Base in the capital of Yunnan Province in southwestern China to reorganize and train new Chinese Air Force cadets at the academy with the American Army Air Corps training model. By 1940, seeing that the Chinese Air Force was struggling militarily due to obsolete aircraft, ill-trained pilots... Uh, an overall shortage of equipment, the Chinese government sent Chenault to United States, Chenault, as he liked to say, to United States to uh, meet with banker Dr. T.V. Sung in Washington, D.C. with the following goal, to get as many fighter planes, bombers, and transports as possible, plus all the supplies needed to maintain them and the pilots to fly the aircraft. Chenault's mission to Washington generated interest in the concept of creating an American volunteer group of pilots and mechanics to serve in China. Then on April 25th, 1941, the U.S. and China formally signed a $50 million stabilization agreement to support the Chinese currency. Crazy, crazy considering how powerful China is now. But it wasn't that long ago when the U.S., uh, you know, had to help them out like that. Uh, we cover a lot of Chinese history in the 1940s in more depth than I'm going to do here today in episode 238 on Mao Zedong, if you're curious. By December 23rd, 1940, with approval by the War Department, State Department, and U.S. President Franklin D. Roosevelt, an agreement is reached to provide China with 100 P-40B Tomahawk aircraft, a single-engine, single-seat, all-metal fighter, uh, ground-attack aircraft that just uh, recently had debuted in 1938. hundred planes were created, sent to Burma on third-country freighters during the spring of 1941. Their first battle occurred on December 20th, 1941, when the aircraft were flying out of Kunming. Had you ever, had you ever heard of Kunming before? I hadn't. Just a little-known Chinese city of over 6 million people. So many fucking giant cities in China. That's the 16th biggest city over there. It'll be the fifth biggest U.S. metro area here, right behind Houston, ahead of Phoenix and Philadelphia. Chennault recruited some 300 American pilots and ground crew, posing as tourists who were adventurers or mercenaries, not necessarily idealists out to save China from, you know, communist forces or Japanese forces. Uh, under uh, Chenault, they developed into a crack fighting unit, always going against uh, superior Japanese forces, right? They became the symbol of America's military might in Asia, the Flying Tigers. And Chenault became known as Leatherface. Seriously, he became a badass, beloved commander of his private air force, living legend. Leatherface's Flying Tigers. That's the name of the big blockbuster Hollywood movie based on all this. Also, remember hearing about the Flying Tigers? We talked about them back in the Hell's Angel episode. 
maybe once before that. Uh, according to the Hells Angels website, the club's name first suggested by an associate of the founders named uh, Arvid Olson, a man who had served in the Hells Angels squadron of the Flying Tigers in China. So a guy who fought under Chenault. A year before the U.S. officially entered World War II, Chenault developed an ambitious plan for a sneak attack on Japanese bases. His Flying Tigers would use U.S. bombers and U.S. pilots, all flying with Chinese markings. He thought a handful of flyers and planes could win the war single-handedly. Of course he did. He's fucking Leatherface. He probably could have just, he's probably just like, give me just, if you just gave me the right guns and drop just me in Japan, I'll win it for you. Uh, Chenault's Flying Tigers began training August 1941, primarily based out of uh, Rangoon, Burma and Kunming, China. Uh, Burma, now known as Myanmar, uh, borders China to the south, eastern Thailand and Laos and western Bangladesh. And Rangoon, now known as Yangon. Uh, just weeks after the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, the Flying Tigers made their first successful attack on Japanese forces when the American flyers encountered 10 Japanese aircraft heading to raid Kunming and successfully shot down four of those raiders. Thus, Claire, uh, Claire Chenault became America's, quote, first military leader to be publicly recognized for striking a blow against the Japanese military forces despite being a civilian mercenary. The Flying Tigers fought the Japanese for seven months after the attack on Pearl Harbor, Chenault's three squadrons used P-40s and his tactics of defensive pursuit formulated in the years when bombers were actually faster than intercepting fighter aircraft to guard the Burma Road, uh, Burma Road, Rangoon, and other strategic locations in Southeast Asia and Western China against Japanese forces. A P-40 could get up to uh, almost uh, 360 miles per hour. The Nakajima Ki-43, one of Japan's most popular single-engine fighters, it would max out at 329 miles per hour. 329, so yeah, a little slower than the, uh, than the bombers. Uh, let's fast forward now to the end of World War II. Following the surrender of Japan in August of 1945, Chenault retired from the Army Air Forces on uh, uh, Halloween, uh, October 31st, 1945. All right, so he's, he's back in and, they, and then he's out. Uh, he left with a uh, high opinion of uh, Chiang Kai-shek, Kai-shek, the leader of the Republic of China at the close of World War II, and he advocated international support for Asian anti-communist movements. Uh, he thought it was his responsibility to do all he could to help nationalist uh, China in a struggle against the Chinese Communist Party. And that feeling of responsibility was what led him to found the Civil Air Transport Company with Whit Whiting Will Lauer. Unlike Chenault, Will Lauer uh, was not a pilot, uh, had no uh, you know prior military experience. He was prior to Air America, mostly known for being America's number one hamster breeder, randomly. Uh, you know how every pet shop in America sells hamsters now? Well, that wasn't always the case. Uh, you couldn't buy a single hamster in the U.S. prior to 1940. So where do they come from? Today's pet store hamsters actually can be traced back to Syria. Female wild hamster and her litter were captured in Aleppo, Syria, 1930. Animals were taken to a laboratory in Jerusalem for behavioral study. Lab workers found them to be friendly, full of character, cute, very easy to look after. Uh, so, you know, some were taken home. The Jerusalem lab workers sent hamsters to laboratories around the world as well uh, with their short lifespans, large litters. Uh, the domesticated hamster was developed pretty quickly. The Syrian hamster first brought to the U.S. 1938 by Whiting Willauer. By 1940, he sold them to popular pet stores in New York City, Chicago, Boston, Atlanta, Seattle, uh, San Francisco, L.A., Dallas, and then Catherine Hepburn, Bing Crosby, Humphrey Bogart. They, they get them. They talk about them in interviews, uh, popular magazines like Life, Good Housekeeping, and Harper's. And it's, you know, it's fucking hamster mania. And uh, to this day, Willauer one of America's most popular hamster names. I had a hamster growing up named Willauer. And that is fucking nonsense, of course. No, the part about Willauer 
and the celebrities is nonsense. But the Syria and Jerusalem hamster origins part, well, that's true. So the lie was kind of worth it, right? Pet store hamsters say in the States do trace back to Syria, so now you know that. Also, the animal did become popular in the U.S. in the 1940s and was not available prior to that decade. So, you know, important hamster trivia to make you look super cool at parties that you probably didn't think you were going to get today. You know, now you get to have people say, like, who knew Michelle knew so much about hamsters? We got to invite her over more often. She's so cool. So you're welcome. Uh, Will Lauer was an American ambassador. That's what he was. That, he might have had hamsters. I don't know everything about him. Uh, primarily to Honduras and Costa Rica before Air America. He was born November 30th, 1906, New York City. Uh, graduated from Princeton, then Harvard Law. So I guess kind of smart. From 1931 to 1939, he practiced admiralty law in Boston, serving as an attorney in the criminal division of the Department of Justice. Uh, then from 1941 to 1944, he served as executive secretary of China Defense Supplies Incorporated. China Defense Supplies, the main agency for coordinating lend-lease aid to China from the U.S. Incorporated in the U.S. in 1941. Uh, it was an organization of the Chinese government, chaired by TV Song, the banker, Chanel, right, met with in 1940 on a mission to help get the U.S. to fund anti-communist military efforts in China. And China Defense Supplies, staffed by Americans, primarily based in Washington, D.C., like Will Lauer, which is how he met old fucking Leatherface, right? Now the two have united. Will Lauer also served as director of the Far East and Special Territories branch of the Foreign Foreign Economic Administration in 1944-1945. Right? Then he goes on to found CAT with Chenault. Will Lauer was CAT's executive vice president, later became president, uh, remained associated with the uh, Civil Air Transport Company from 1946 until his resignation in 1954. And uh, yes, the acronym yeah, would be Civil Air Transport, not the Chinese stuff I said earlier. That's what it started as, and then it morphed into this, and then it morphs into Air America. Uh, 1950, uh, Will Whiting, I just, that name will not, I keep wanting to call him William or Whitling or something. Uh, Whiting Will Lauer would be, that's a, that is a fucking weird name. That's a weird name, right? Whiting Willauer. Why does it's the first name is too close to the second name? Maybe like if I was like Daniel Danielson or something. Come on, it's not just me. Uh, he'd be the one to sell cat to uh, insert drumroll here in your head, the International Federation of Syrian Hamster Transportation, or he would sell it to the CIA. Done with the hamster stuff. Yeah, that's the one. Uh, now that we know these men, let's zoom out, reconnect with cat. Right, Civil Air Transport America, Air America's precursor by 1950. Following the defeat of the Chinese nationalist forces and their retreat to Taiwan, this airline was facing financial difficulties. Their mission to get the Chinese nationalists, excuse me, <clears throat> on the Chinese nationalists in power was over. The communists won. Ugh, yuck. Bojangles just took a piss on a Chinese flag. Uh, that August, the CIA formed a private Delaware corporation called Airedale, called Airedale Corporation, which formed a subsidiary called Cat Incorporated. The subsidiary corporation purchased shares of civil air transport, and the now CIA-controlled airline would continue to be called CAT until 1959. Uh, CAT maintained a civilian appearance by now flying scheduled passenger flights while simultaneously using uh, aircraft uh, to fly covert missions. They based themselves in Taiwan, flew international flights to Hong Kong, uh, Japan, South Korea, Philippines, Thailand, as well as domestic routes within Taiwan. It's pretty fucking slick. All right, they had flight attendants and everything. Fully operational civilian airline running domestic flights in Asia and South Pacific, Unbeknownst to passengers, CIA was running and transporting military shit in the cargo holds. And they, and they sometimes would use the planes only for covert missions. They wouldn't like simultaneously do it, but they would do both sometimes, which is fucking crazy. Like imagine being on a Delta flight that's also being used for covert operations, right? You're flying from Atlanta to Peru. Over Columbia, you catch a glimpse of a bunch of Navy SEALs <laughs> just parachuting out the back of the plane. 
Then when you get to your hotel, maybe a couple scary looking dudes show up at your room, tell you, maybe you gotta fucking stop talking about those uh, people in the parachutes you think you saw. Or the cleaning staff, you know, finds you dead the next morning of an accidental drug overdose. More than that. Uh, 1950, the Patet Lao, Laos' Communist Party would come to power. So where the fuck did these commies come from? Bojangles are shaking. He forgot how many different communist forces existed back then. Well, let's go back to colonialism to see how they uh, originated. 1893, France had declared Laos part of French Indochina. To the French, having Laos as a protectorate was a means to control the Mekang River or the Mekong River, a valuable trade route through Southeast Asia. Uh, France's grasp on Laos slipped in 1945 when the Japanese occupied Laos in the closing days of World War II. When atomic bombs fell in Japan, Laos declared independence under the short-lived Lao Isara, Free Laos uh, Government in 1945. Then the French regained power the following year. While Laos wouldn't achieve full independence until 1954 with the victory of their ally, North Vietnam's uh, Ho Chi Minh over the French, the Patet Lao began organizing back in 1950 at Viet Minh headquarters as Laos fought France for independence before it would then go into a civil war. Communist uh, forces versus, you know, pro-democracy forces. Uh, They didn't want to be controlled by some European power, and I respect that. I just hate that the answer to pushing back against colonialism was communism for some people. Uh, And Laos, still communist. And uh, check out a a U.S. State Department recent review of their human rights violations. Arbitrary detention, political prisoners, censorship, substantial interference with the rights of peaceful assembly and freedom of association, restrictions on political participation, corruption, etc. But, you know, I know the U.S. could be biased. So what does Amnesty International have to say about Laos? Uh, Amnesty International, an international non-governmental organization focused on human rights uh, headquartered in the U.K. And in their most recent report on Laos from 2018, the rights to uh, freedom of expression, association, and peaceful assembly still remain severely restricted. And the state still exercises strict control over the media and over civil society. Political activists regularly disappear over there. I bring all this up to say... I think the intention to push Laos towards democracy was a noble one. Uh, What the U.S. did in the name of that push, well, that's a hell of a lot harder to justify. Uh, Back to Patet Lao, uh, forming in the 1950s now. The communist group largely depended on aid from their Vietnamese communist brothers, right? Their leader was uh, Prince uh, Supu Nivong, Supu Nivong, uh, the Red Prince, born to to a Laotian prince and a commoner, this this episode today is a fucking tongue exercise for me. Uh, his education in Vietnam had led him to become a disciple of Ho Chi Minh and later to lead the opposition against his half-brother, Suvana Puma, who was prime minister of Laos five different times. Puma wanted Laos to have a coalition government balancing the Patet Lao with the uh, more conservative parties, parties of the country. But the Patet Lao had a different vision. Uh, true communism it doesn't coexist well with other forms of government, right? It's kind of an all or nothing deal. Forms of socialism can coexist with capitalism and other political ideologies, but actual communism, right? The state fucking controls everything. Too extreme to really blend in, mingle with other forms of government. Unfortunately for the anti-communist US, uh, Puma's hold on power, tenuous at best. Under his rule, government troops and the Patet Lao began to clash in the Northeast uh, along the border of Vietnam. Within a few years, CIA, Air America, they would step in to try and help stop the red spread there. So now let's head northeast for a second. Way up uh, the coast near Japan, checking on some other commies, Air America would uh, help battle. The Korean War, right, kicks off June 25th, 1950, when some 75,000 soldiers from North Korea's, uh, you know, People's Army pour across the 38th parallel. 
These fuckers crashed to the boundary between the Soviet-backed Democratic People's Republic of Korea to the north and the pro-Western Republic of Korea to the south. This invasion was the first true non-covert military action of the Cold War. Two days later, President Truman orders U.S. forces in South Korea to repulse North uh, Korea's invasion, wanting to make sure that Americans sent a strong message to North Korea and more importantly to China and the Soviet Union that the spread of communism would be fought head on, right? That the U.S. isn't going to fuck around, just turn a blind eye to that. After some early back and forth across the 38th parallel, the fighting stalls, casualties mount uh, with nothing to, uh, to, to show for the casualties in some people's eyes. Then Kat shows up to help out. Uh, during the Korean War, Kat airlifts thousands of tons of war materials to supply U.S. military operations, including support of Chinese Nationalist Party military holdouts uh, based down in Burma, named Operation Paper. Kat's head office address uh, was in Washington, D.C., uh, with the footnote that the company had registered in the U.S., uh, at that time, the president was uh, listed in the directory, still William, uh, God damn it, Whiting. What the fuck? I'm never going to meet another Whiting. Uh, <laughs> listed in directory as Whiting Willauer. Uh, and their fleet was listed as uh, 23 Curtis C-46 Commando and four Douglas DC-3 aircrafts. Uh, but CAT, of course, was operating very far from DC. November 29th, 1952, a CAT C-47 leaves Seoul on a mission to collect an anti-communist Chinese agent in the foothills of northeastern China. The mission was apparently compromised. Chinese forces were waiting for them. Approaching low over the ground, it was attacked by small arms fire, crash lands near the town of Antu in, Chinese, in China's uh, Zhejiang province. The pilots, Robert Snotty, Norman Schwartz, were killed during the crash and subsequent fire were buried nearby. Two CIA officers on board, John T. Downey and Richard G. Fechtau, they survive and are immediately taken prisoner by Chinese communist forces who are waiting for the flight. And then these guys uh, are carried away in a golden chariot to Beijing where they will stay in a five-star hotel, uh, you know, made of diamonds and be entertained by the world's most beautiful women, uh, fed the finest foods until they felt like heading home. Mao's communists loved to entertain CIA operatives and show them how great life actually was there as opposed to bullshit Western propaganda. And of course, that's not true. No, this is uh, this is a crazy story. Uh, Downey and Fechtau, uh, held by... China regularly interrogated for roughly 20 years. Can you fucking imagine that? Two decades in a Chinese prison. Uh, Fechtau released unexpectedly following Nixon's visit to China in 1972. Downey released only after Washington publicly acknowledged their spy mission in 1973. And with his release, Downey would become the longest held prisoner, uh, a prisoner of war in U.S. military history. What a horrible distinction. He was just 22 when he was captured, 43 when he was released. And, and what did these uh, guys do when they got back? Well, uh, Downey, he went to Harvard. Pretty awesome. Three years later, at age 46, Downey graduated from Harvard Law School, ultimately would become a judge in Connecticut. And I love this. The summer before law school, he registered for a Russian course at Yale. See how well he taught himself that language while he was in prison in China. And in New Haven, while taking classes, he meets a Chinese-born woman he would go on to marry and have a son with, Audrey Lee, born just a few miles from the prison where he was held. She had immigrated from China just a few months after his capture. How strange and awesome. He would live to the age of 84 and do uh, so much else. We could do a whole episode on him. And then this other guy, Richard uh, Fechtau, truly known as Dick, not just my joke. Well, Dick was just 25 when he was captured. This story is even crazier, I think. Poor guy had twin daughters waiting for him back home when he's captured. His girls are just two years old when he's captured. When he gets out, they're 22. Then... And that's, that's fucking sad, but how cool is this? When he gets home, he reunites with their mother who he had gotten a divorce uh, from, or she had divorced him shortly before he left for Southeast Asia. Now, you know, his ex-wife Peg, 
So now they get back together. They get remarried. Band's back together after all of that, after two decades. 1977, Dick meets up with an old Boston University football teammate, John Simpson, who's now the BU athletic director. He offers him the position of assistant athletic director, and he accepts his job, works diligently and quietly uh, serving BU until his retirement in 1989. And then he's honored by being inducted into the BU's Athletic Hall of Fame. In 2017, uh, he's 95 and still alive. So he was, uh, you know, he's, he's, he was working there when he was like a uh, fucking, oh no, sorry. He was decked to the Hall of Fame when he was 90 years old. For a second there, I, I looked at the dates wrong. <laughs> I thought he was the assistant athletic director still at 90. It's like, Jesus, dude, fucking retire already. But no, but hail Nimrod to both of those amazing motherfuckers. Uh, Bojangles just stood on his hind legs, uh, saluted with his one remaining front paw. And if he's our uh, three-legged, one-eyed, commie-hating pitbull mascot slash uh, one of the suck gods, if you're confused today. At the time of their capture, the families of these pilots were told in order to keep the CIA's covert actions in China uh, covert that they had crashed into the Sea of Japan on a routine flight to Tokyo and were presumed dead. So that's obviously tragic. How crazy for Dick's ex-wife to realize he was still alive two decades later. Uh, Crazy enough, it would take until 2001 for China to allow the U.S. Defense Department's prisoner of war and missing in action office to conduct a recovery effort for the bodies of the pilots those guys crashed with. In 2005, the POW MIA office announced that it identified the remains of Robert Snotty using DNA analysis. Uh, Schwartz's remains have never been recovered. So just a little quick personal note on, uh, you know, some of the people who served in Air America. So back to Cat now. Uh, May 1st, 1953, Operation Squaw began calling for Cat to airdrop supplies to French troops besieged at Nassam, Laos. This operation was the first U.S. involvement in what became the first Indochina war as Laos fought for its independence from France. U.S. and CIA would back France in this conflict, right? Again, trying to stop the spread of communism. The Cold War, all about puppet governments. The Soviet Union, China, uh, North Vietnam funding, sometimes actively fighting for communist-friendly regimes. U.S. funding, sometimes actively fighting for regimes friendly with the West. And the same shit goes on today. Now I got to mention Ukraine, right? Uh, uh, Zelensky, the first, you know, uh, the U.S. And the, and the West want him to remain in power in Ukraine. Why? Well, because he's friendly with the West. He'll fight with and for the West. He values Western capitalistic ideals. They have an emerging free market economy. Uh, he's a good trading partner, pro-democracy, no matter what uh, some like Tucker Carlson tried to say. It's very confusing. Uh, the West also likes Ukraine because it's an important buffer between Russia and much of Eastern Europe, between Russia and NATO. Why does Putin want to, uh, you know, probably kill him? Uh, definitely replace him with a pro-Russian leader. Well, simple. No weird deep state convoluted conspiracies needed to see what's going on over there. Putin wants to extend the sphere of Russian influence, of his influence westward further into Europe. But the rest of Europe outside of Belarus does not want to, you know, Putin to do that. They don't want to be under the thumb of Putin. At the core of all of it, I mean, that's it. It's pretty simple. It's a battle for influence, uh, a power grab, Cold War 2.0 shit, totalitarianism versus democracy. Why do I hate Putin? Because he's a fucking dictator. I don't understand why anybody likes this guy on any level. He's a dictator posing as a president, the head of a fake democracy. He's anti-freedom, as shown by how he's just been throwing journalists in prison for reporting the truth, along with uh, protesters, you know, currently. He's been censoring the media over in Russia to an insane degree, right? Any politician that anti-freedom, right? No, we can't have Facebook in here. Can't control that. Got to have it out. That's someone that I want dead, actually. Him, Kim Jong-un, Any other corrupt motherfucker who throws people in prison for criticizing the state. One of the most important rights we have in America, I think, is to be able to openly hate whoever happens to be in charge and not be legally punished for it, not disappear for that. 
That's so important to me. One of the most important freedoms. It's legal in every nation in the world to suck your leader's dick. That means nothing. Being able to tell the leader right or wrong to suck your dick, that's the kind of freedom I want. As ugly as it sometimes gets, right? I don't always like the criticism or who's given it, but I love what it represents. This is why there's so much concern about the CIA killing or being involved uh, somehow in, you know, uh, Kennedy's death or in MLK's death or Malcolm X's. If we start making our own disappear, well, then we're no better in moments than our Cold War enemies. And my sentiments about all this are why I support the U.S. military, uh, what they tried to accomplish, Air America included, in Southeast Asia following World War II and into the 70s. Right? We covered Stalin. We covered North Korea's Kim uh, Il-sung. We covered Mao Zedong. Those motherfuckers, tyrants. And those who lived under them lived in tyranny. And North Vietnam's Ho Chi Minh, well, he was aligned with, I know he wasn't as bad, but he was aligned with some of their ideals. Right? Dude trained in Moscow. Stop the red spread. About a, as noble as an ideal that you, can, that you can fight for, I think. But I realized the way this fight was fought, you know, was often unethical. So back to 1953 now. Uh, Cat transported supplies and troops for French operations during Operation Castor in November of 1953. Cat assisted the French government at various times during its Indochina wars, uh, flying supplies and equipment into Hanoi's Jialam airport and fields, other fields using C-46, C-47 transport aircraft. At the Battle of uh, Dien Bien, uh, Dien Bien Phu, sorry, Cat supplied the French garrison by parachuting troops and supplies with covert uh, U.S. Air Force C-1. 119s inscribed with French Air Force insignia. Two CAD pilots, James B. McGovern uh, Jr. and William Buford, killed in action during the siege of Dien Bien Phu in May 1954, and some historians consider them to be the very first American casualties of what would later be termed the Vietnam War. All depends on how you define uh, when that conflict began. McGovern's remains recovered in 2002, identified in 2006. Seven surviving cat pilots out of the 37 involved in the battle received the French Legion of Honor Award in February of 2005 during a special ceremony at the French Embassy in D.C. Uh, meanwhile, back in 1953, Operation Squaw continued. Uh, May 5th, cat flew six of the transports repainted with French insignias to Gialam Air Base and parachuted supplies and equipment to French forces in Laos until July 16th with cat pilots making numerous airdrops to French troops in Laos. CAT contra- uh, contracting with the French in January of 1954 to provide 24 pilots, uh, or they contracted with them to, to provide 24 pilots to fly a dozen C-119 aircrafts. Uh, they went to support isolated French troops at Dien Bien Phu. The Viet Minh had successfully isolated the French garrison, aka military post, from other French troops. And in March, they launched a fierce siege on the stronghold. Over the next two months, Viet Minh, uh, Viet Minh, uh, Units battled the trapped French soldiers with artillery, anti-aircraft guns, and automatic weapons fire. As the siege dragged on, conditions inside Dien Bien Phu, uh, you know, decayed rapidly, outnumbered and outgunned. The garrison's defenders suffered terrible casualties, especially as food, medicine, ammunition, other supplies dwindled away. The French magazine Le Monde uh, reported at the height of the siege, the surgeons at Dien Bien Phu are reaching the limit of their endurance, and the overflow of wounded are waiting on the ground for their dressings to be changed. The water of the river in which bodies float can be filtered only in eyedrop amounts. There is just enough water to give the men uh, when they get delirious from thirst. Eager to help out, cat flight started in March 1954 as the Viet Minh began their assault and continued until Dien Bien Phu fell to the communists on May 7th. May 7th, 1954, the garrison at Dien Bien Phu finally overrun by Viet Minh forces. An estimated 8,000 Viet Minh were killed in the siege and battle, another 15,000 troops injured, uh, by comparison, only 2,200 French troops died, another 6,000 wounded, another 10,000 captured, 
Despite those stats, the Battle of Dien Bien Phu was universally regarded as a tremendous Viet Minh victory and a shocking defeat for France. In fact, the loss uh, triggered a tremendous shakeup in the French government, created an outcry against the war throughout France that could not be ignored. And then on July 20th, 1954, France uh, agreed to permanently withdraw from Vietnam under terms of an agreement known as the Geneva Accords. Now people in North Vietnam got to live in a nation where criticizing the state could cost you your job, uh, get you kicked out of school, sent to prison, or even killed. So fuck yeah, bro. Things became so shitty that in the first few years of communist rule, there was a mass exodus of around two and a half million people. Approximately 5% of the population were like, we got to get the fuck out of here and uh, secretly escaped the country either by sea or overland through Cambodia. And they had to do that secretly, right? They weren't openly allowed to leave. And that, this is why one of the many reasons I just don't like communism. Like you don't do that when your government is awesome, right? Laos was now declared neutral, but due to its location, pretty clear that there would uh, quickly be a similar war occurring there to determine if it was going to be a communist country or a free nation. Laos borders both Vietnam and China, primarily sandwiched between Vietnam and Thailand. Again, per the domino theory, which said you know, that states fell to communism like dominoes, meaning one after another in geographic, uh, you know, geographic, excuse me, proximity, the U.S. proclaimed Laos a buffer state due to it bordering, bordering North Vietnam and China. Now the main Cold War fighting in the region, you know, moves to Laos. January of 1955, the U.S. creates the United States Operations Mission, USOM, in Vientiane, Laos, to provide foreign aid. By the end of the year, a program's evaluation office, PEO, staffed by retired military personnel or military officers, quietly delegated leadership to the CIA. In July of 1955, USOM officials learn that a rice failure threatens famine in several provinces in Laos because a bunch of these areas were in remote mountainous regions Airdrops provided the only feasible means to deliver essential supplies of rice and salt. Three Cat C-46 arrive at the northeastern railhead, the province of Udon Thani, Thailand, on September 11th, 1955, to begin the airlift. And I would love to visit uh, Udon Thani, uh, Thailand someday. By the way, uh, looks fucking gorgeous. Crazy, beautiful landscape. So green. Uh, by the end of the month, Cat had flown more than 200 missions to 25 reception areas, delivered uh, 1,000 tons of emergency food. They're going to drop a a lot of bombs later on this nation, but did also drop, you know, food as well. Humanitarian relief type uh, supplies. Uh, This airdrop relief uh, operation conducted with smooth efficiency marked the beginning of CATS and later Air America's support of U.S. assistance programs in Laos. So they did start with food. A new CAT contract was signed in 1957. A pilot named Bruce Blevins flew a C-47 to uh, Vientiane in service of the U.S. Embassy. When he flew uh, elsewhere in the country, conditions were technologically undeveloped, underdeveloped. Uh, Vien Tian had the only control tower, radio navigational aid, and non-dirt runway in all of Laos. Laos is very rural, uh, still pretty rural. Just over 7 million people live in the whole country right, right now, with uh, around a million of them in the biggest city of you know, Vien Tian. 1957 cable from the American intelligence officials in Laos to Washington noted that the Patet Lao, Right, the Laotian communists and the Royal Laotian Guard, soldiers of a constitutional monarchy, unable to come to a peaceful agreement in recent negotiations. So the CIA gathered intelligence implying that the communist group were not about to abandon their radical ideology and that they desired to overthrow a democratic government. The CIA believed that the Patet Lao wanted to establish you know, communism via subversive political and covert actions uh, as opposed to overt military operations. CIA also thought that the Patet Lao would use military means if they had to. The CIA hangs around in Laos. Keep a fucking eye on things. 
October of 1958, uh, in a memorandum, the CIA acknowledges that the agency has officially overseen covert operations in Laos now. As the Civil War grows in intensity there, CAT C-47s and C-46s pass with uh, you know, ever, greater, ever greater frequency over Vientiane to fulfill urgent airdrop requests. 1958, Time Magazine reports that 20 CAT aircraft are supplying the PRRI movement against President Sukarno's government in Indonesia now. Uh, which the Eisenhower administration feared had communist sympathies. It's all over Southeast uh, Asia and the South Pacific. And the reports are right. Fucking commies are everywhere. Uh, April of 1958, two CAT pilots, William H. Beale, Alan Pope, they fly combat missions for Indonesian rebels. CIA directed Beale and uh, Pope to target not only Indonesian armed forces, but also unarmed foreign merchant ships in order to frighten overseas trade away from Indonesian waters, thereby weakening the Indonesian economy and undermining Sukarno's government. Eek. Targeting unarmed foreign merchant ships. That feels like it's crossing a serious line there. Uh, does this end justify the means? I mean, I said stopping the red spread is a noble cause. I believe that. But is it okay to attack unarmed merchant ships? I don't think so. Uh, where is the line though? I'm not sure. It's also fucking gray. Uh, April 28th, 1958, Beale attacks a Royal Dutch shell terminal in Indonesia and sinks a British tanker. Pope sinks merchant ships from Greece, Italy, and Panama. God, that feels fucking shady. He. Uh, even if your cause is just, what military actions start to make it real hard to keep calling yourself one of the good guys? Uh, May 18th, Pope attacks a pair of Indonesian merchant ships that are carrying government troops for a counteroffensive. Okay, now it's military. I'm military. Uh, Indonesian anti-aircraft fire then shoots Pope and his uh, Indonesian radio operator out of the sky and they are captured. The CIA had ordered the CAT pilots uh, fly sterile with no documents that could either identify them or link them to the U.S. government. However, Pope was carrying around 30 documents including a detailed flight log, secret orders for temporary deployment in Indonesia, uh, military separation files, a cat identity card. Uh Uh-oh. Pope's capture of these documents immediately exposes the level of CIA activity for the Pramista rebellion in Indonesia. Embarrassed, the Eisenhower administration and CIA support uh, in the region withdraws its agents and remaining aircraft from the area. Early 1960, an Indonesian military court then tries Alan Pope Pope, and uh, sentences him to death. However, in 1962, Robert Kennedy negotiates with uh, President Sukarno, and in August of that year, the Indonesian authorities release Pope and return him to the U.S. Bet that dude was nervous as fuck for a while. Also bet when he got back home, he immediately uh, became the guy at the bar with the coolest story. Oh, you got a fight with uh, two guys at the same time in one? That's pretty intense. It's a cool story, bro. I was sentenced to die in an Indonesian prison after getting shot out of the sky, fighting the spread of communism for the CIA. Yeah, I will have another beer. Thank you. Uh, the communists never did take over in Indonesia, by the way. They tried. Uh, they were never successful. And actually, 1965 and 1966, this is crazy. I can't believe I'd never heard of this. Indonesia did an insane purge of communists and people just suspected of being communist sympathizers. Anywhere from half a million to 1.2 million people were fucking purged. One of the worst massacres of the 20th century and one that almost never gets talked about. And the CIA was for sure involved in it. To what extent, not publicly known. Might have to suck that craziness someday. Uh, I'm clearly not pro-communist, but uh, looking into uh, this this thing, uh, it sure seems like anti-communist forces in Indonesia took shit uh, way too far. Uh, now let's back up to 1959, an important year for Air America. 1959 would be the year that civil air transport became Air America uh, on March 26th. The change made primarily to avoid confusion about the air proprietaries, oh my gosh, about its operations in Japan. Uh, during the summer of 1959, pro-communist North Vietnam invaded Laos to help the Patet Lao, 
uh, which made the U.S. believe that its chances of anti-red success in Laos had become lower than ever. But they still decided to try and, you know, stop the red spread. Fall of 1959, U.S. Special Forces initiate training a number of Laotian, Laotian soldiers in unconventional warfare tactics. Since the Laotian government wanted U.S. assistance to remain secret in the Laotian, Laotian Civil War against the Patet Lao, uh, the CIA established a unit from the U.S. Army Special Forces who arrived on Air America wearing civilian clothes, having no obvious U.S. connection, right? Covert operations. These soldiers led uh, uh, male, male and Hmong tribesmen against communist forces. And this covert program was called Operation Hotfoot. Hotfoot was under the command of Lieutenant Colonel Arthur Bull Simmons, fucking Bull Simmons, uh, you know, in Laos. 12 mobile CIA training teams took up duties in Laos. Air America would bring them whatever resources they requested. Let's zoom in now on the CIA's secret war in Laos. And it's crazy. This is not also more well-known. This is a huge fucking war. Uh, As we know, CIA activities in Laos started the 1950s. Wasn't until Operation Hotfoot that things really took off. Why was the CIA recruiting Laotian civilians, not working with the Royal Army like they had before? Well, they realized that the communists and the Royal Army kind of battled to a standstill and that there was a power vacuum to be exploited. The power vacuum lay in the fact that at the time, a single Laotian national identity did not exist. Since parts of Laos and Thailand were one and the same before French colonizers kind of randomly fucking drew up some map borders, many people considered Laotian or Thai by the Western world did not think of themselves that way. They thought of themselves as members of a particular tribe or group that did not line up with their borders. Though Laos had a king, a government, and an army, many of its people, estimated only around 2 million at that time, identified more as male or Hmong or Black Thai or Kalum tribesmen, uh, among various other small ethnic groups that resided in the countryside. Many of these people also uh, had a very lucrative trade business they were involved in. Laos's chief cash crop was opium. The CIA knew that whoever could, contain, con, uh, whoever could gain control of the opium trade would rule Laos. Uh, another moral dilemma here. Is spreading heroin uh, use around the world worth preventing the formation of a new communist regime? Laotian opium uh, will be made into heroin. Much of that heroin, we'll never know how much, you know, would find its way to Americans, American GIs, and to America. Uh, the CIA, man, they kind of make a lot of tough choices. Uh, they had to, their, their whole history, I'm sure these do today, global politics, gaining, maintaining control of global influence. It's a fucking dirty game. And, and I don't think you can play it effectively without getting your hands dirty. This might be weird to say, but I think I might do okay working for the CIA. I, I, I think I might have the right temperament. I just imagine that you have to make logical, strategic, emotionless choices, view human lives uh, as pawn, you know, pawns in a chess game as cold as that sounds, and accept terrible consequences in order to achieve victories that prevent even greater negative consequences, right? You can't win without sacrificing some pawns. Some people, I don't think they could get past that. But I think you just have to see it as an unavoidable evil, the way of the world. If you're not willing to fight dirty, you're going to lose the fight to someone else who's willing to fight dirty, and they're going to cause more atrocities than you would have, I would think. No experience in this, obviously. But looking at it with cold logic, trying to be rational, it just doesn't seem like there's much room for uh, true white knights who never get innocent blood in their hands in situations and battles and ideological, you know, uh, wars like this. Whether the CIA puts a pro-democratic regime in charge or the Vietnamese help put a pro-communist regime in charge, innocent people are going to die either way. So if you believe in democracy, the fight for it is worth it despite tragic deaths that will occur along the way viewed through this kind of prism. Anyway, the CIA steps in, tries to unite Laos's different tribes. Communists in the area, they're doing the fucking exact same thing. 
Uh, this is a huge down for the CIA. It'll be their biggest so far. According to William Leary, historian at the University of Georgia, CIA-led covert action in Laos was the biggest paramilitary operation in the history of the agency. The CIA-backed Hmong guerrillas used Air America to drop 46 million pounds of food, tens of thousands of troops, and engage in numerous clandestine missions with state-of-the-art equipment like night vision goggles. And of course, Air America also transported fuckload of opium. Though there's some debate about whether the CIA merely allowed the transport of opium or actually was directly involved in it. But does that distinction really fucking matter? I mean, in the end, the result is the same. The opium is transported. Uh, In the end, you know, they would contribute to the global heroin market that would lead to hundreds of thousands of arrests and overdoses, you know, in just the U.S. Uh, William M. Leary, that professor from the University of Georgia, said that the uh, CIA was not directly involved in the drug trade, writing that American-owned airlines never knowingly transported opium in or out of Laos, nor did their American pilots ever profit from its transport. But uh, most people disagree with this who've looked into it. 1972, a PhD candidate in, the South, in Southeast Asian history at Yale University, Alfred McCoy, testified before the U.S. Senate Committee on Appropriations Foreign Operations Subcommittee and accused American officials of condoning and even cooperating with corrupt elements in Southeast Asia's illegal drug trade out of political and military considerations. The U.S. Uh, State Department uh, responded to the initial allegations, saying that they were unable to find any evidence to substantiate them, much less proof. But they didn't want to find that. And they can hide it if they want to. Later investigations by the Inspector General of the CIA, the U.S. House Committee on Foreign Affairs, and U.S. Senate Select Committee to Study Gover- Governmental Operations with Respect to Intelligence Activities, Jesus Christ, these fucking terms, also found the charges to be unsubstantiated. But again, they can just be saying that. I mean, after all, you know, we're talking about the CIA, again, kind of part of their job to hide what they've been up to, to not admit to what they've done. Um, sometimes I feel like we've been spoiled so long in the U.S., and in much of the West, actually, uh, especially outside of Europe, where massive wars haven't been repeatedly fought on our soil, we've had it so easy compared to almost everywhere else in the world for so many generations that we don't understand really how important it is to have organizations willing to do international dirty work, like the CIA, to make sure that regimes like the ones they fought uh, that would make life so much worse for anyone living under their oppressive thumb, some dictator who controls the media and your ability to protest in ways you've never come close to experiencing, make sure they don't fucking take over where we're leaving living. I just don't think many of us will ever really appreciate how much easier, uh, you know, shady shit going down in foreign lands has made our lives. And I'm not even condoning everything done in the name of defeating oppressive regimes, but we do benefit from the result of the efforts. All of that makes me think about one of my favorite bands of all time, Rage Against the Machine. Love them. Love basically their entire catalog. I can't think of a single song I don't like, but while they were screaming about how evil the U.S. has been, they were also selling a fuckload of albums in Western stable economies, right? Their shit went multi-platinum in the U.S., uh, not in Laos, right? <laughs> like not in, not in like communist fucking nation, not in Cuba. They toured almost exclusively in stable Western economies where fans, you know, make enough money to buy tickets thanks to those economies where they have the freedom to shout about how much they hate the place that has given them the freedom to shout about how much they hate the place. Like, I wonder how they would feel if they didn't get to live in posh digs and low-crime neighborhoods uh, paid for with all the royalty and tour money. What if they were trying to make their music under some communist regime in the 50s or 60s that put artists to fucking death for dissent? Right? Would they still think America was an evil empire? So easy to shit on the lesser evil when you've never had to experience the greater evil firsthand, I think. Back to 1960 now. Uh, early 1960, the CIA approached Vang Pao, 
major general in the Royal Lao Army and a member of the Hmong minority in Lao, Laos, uh, to be the chief of the secret army to push back against the communist Patet Lao. Right? This motherfucker's a, a Hmong Chuck Norris. Charismatic, prone to pacing while he talked. Vang Pao uh, had experience fighting both the French and the Japanese, kicking the shit out of both. His followers praised him for his bravery in fighting alongside his men. Didn't lead from the back of the uh, field, led from the front. In addition, the CIA ordered the Air Force to deploy a squadron of B-47 bombers to the region to be used to destroy uh, Patet Lao communications to the North Vietnamese. After a long series of negotiations, combined with interventions from, Royal, from the Royal Thailand government, U.S. Special Forces infiltrated the Lao countryside, began training Laotians in unconventional warfare and anti-guerrilla tactics. In March 1960, four Air America pilots trained on U.S. Air Force H-19A helicopters in Japan and the Philippines and reached Laos. Uh, due to the operating limitations of the H-19s, the underpowered pilots uh, could only fly at lower elevations. Generally, they were used uh, to carry CIA case officers to meetings in outlying areas and to distribute leaflets during elections. Beefing up their forces, Air America then hired four experienced U.S. Marine Corps helicopter pilots. Later in the year, the CIA arranged for the Marine Corps to transfer four UH-34 helicopters to Air America to replace the H-19s, right? They just keep kind of expanding. CIA would also build a secret base in Laos. Uh, 1960 called Long Chen. This base was so secret that not even Congress was aware of its existence. Long Chen was unmarked, unmapped, right? Not on any maps, only known to a select few, but used extensively, became the CIA headquarters during the Vietnam War. So active, more than 400 flights came in and out of this fucking secret base that didn't exist on a daily basis. And almost no one in America knew about it. Almost no one in the world knew about it. It would be from Long Chen that the CIA's secret bombings of Laos were organized. Uh, bombing Laos was seen as a safer means of cutting off communist supply lines in Vietnam before they could be used against American troops than ground forces would be. Uh, from 1964 to 1973, this is insane. The U.S. would drop more than 2 million tons of bombs on Laos during 580,000 bombing missions, equal to a plane load of bombs every eight minutes, 24 hours a day for nine fucking years making Laos the most heavily bombed country per capita in the history of the world. Between 1939 and 1945, Allied powers, all of them together, dropped 3.4 million tons of bombs on Hitler and other Axis powers. Right? That is nuts. In Laos, the CIA alone dropped over 2 million tons of bombs. That's more than all the bombs the U.S. dropped on Germany in World War II. More bombs dropped in Laos than were dropped on the Nazis. But it wasn't a war. It wasn't even a conflict that most U.S. citizens even knew about. That's crazy. Later, even more bombs were dropped on Vietnam. Uh, the U.S. dropped 2,150,000 tons of bombs in World War II. But in Vietnam, the U.S. would drop 7.6 million tons of bombs. Motherfucker. Uh, and both nations would end up communist anyway. So many bombs were casually dropped in Laos that when fighter jets could not reach their targets, they would just unload bombs on rural areas of the country and I guess just kind of fucking hope that they didn't blow up anybody. So this is obviously... Really fucking hard to justify. Uh, would the CIA have dared to do that in like a, a European country, in a white country? I doubt it. Feels like a lot of 1950s, 1960s racism, right? Conscious or not, eh, maybe shaped a tax strategy quite a bit in Southeast Asia. Uh, the bombings destroyed many villages, displaced hundreds of thousands of, uh, you know, Laotian civi- civilians during the nine year, nine year period. What's more fucked up, up to a third of the bombs dropped didn't explode, uh, leaving Laos contaminated with vast quantities of unexploded ordnance. Right? Over 20,000 people have been killed or injured by unexploded ordnance in Laos since the bombing ceased. And that's obviously horrific. 
Uh, on the day of his farewell address, January 17th, 1961, U.S. President Dwight Eisenhower approved the CIA's training of anti-communist forces in the mountains of Laos. Uh, their primary mission was to disrupt communist supply routes along the Ho Chi Minh Trail to Vietnam. Eisenhower's successors in the White House, uh, from Kennedy through J- uh, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, would all also approve uh, air support for guerrilla fighters in the region. And Air America would play a big role in all that. From 1962 to 1975, Air America inserted and extracted U.S. personnel, provided logistical support to the Royal Lao Army, uh, the Hmong Army under command of Royal Lao Army Major General right, Vang Pao, and combatant Thai volunteer forces. They transported refugees, flew photo reconnaissance missions, uh, transported a bunch of fucking drugs, uh, provided intelligence on Viet Cong activities. Its civilian-marked aircraft were frequently used to launch search and rescue missions for U.S. pilots uh, down throughout Southeast Asia. Air America pilots were the only known private U.S. corporate employees to operate non-federal aviation administration certified military aircraft in combat roles during this conflict. By mid-1970, the airline had two dozen twin-engine transport aircraft, as well as uh, Boeing 727 and Boeing 747 jets, plus two dozen fixed-wing short takeoff and landing aircraft, in addition to 30 helicopters dedicated to operations in Burma, Cambodia, Thailand, and Laos. So it's a big operation. There are more than 300 pilots, co-pilots, flight mechanics, air freight specialists based in Laos, Vietnam, and Thailand. Also during 1970, Air America delivered 46 million pounds of food in Laos. Helicopter flight time reached more than 4,000 hours a month that same year. Air America flew civilians, diplomats, spies, refugees, commandos, sabotage teams, uh, doctors, uh, pet hamster loads, no, uh, war casualties, uh, drug enforcement officers, even visiting VIPs like uh, Richard Nixon all over Southeast Asia. Uh, it's non-human passengers, uh, maybe more bizarre. Forced draft urbanization policies, such as the widespread application of Agent Orange to Vietnamese farmland, created a disruption in local food production. So thousands of tons of food had to be flown in, including live chickens, pigs, water buffalo, and cattle. Flying in water buffalo, that had been interesting. Uh, on top of the food drops, known as rice drops, came lo- uh, logistical demands for the war itself. And Air America pilots flew thousands of flights transporting and airdropping ammo and weapons, referred to as hard rice friendly forces. I know what's kind of funny to me. Let's get some hard rice out there. Are we, are we taking rice or hard rice? Because it's, it's very different kinds of rice. Uh, let's get to know one of the American uh, Ameri- Air America pilots mixed up in all this now in a, a little more detail. Give a nice little personal touch to the story. Humanize it. Uh, September of 1964, Neil Hansen began a journey that would become the biggest adventure in his life. He's 27. He'd been a pilot for more than half his life, uh, according to him, when he was hired by Air America. After orientation in Taipei, Taiwan, and a stint flying big DC-6 transport planes out of uh, Tachikawa, Japan, Neil is sent to Saigon. He arrives in March 1965, the war there revving up. He quickly comes to realize that Air America's slogan, uh, anything, anytime, anywhere, is no fucking joke. Uh, He will go on to deliver everything from rice to hard rice to bodies, uh, both living and dead. His work, never boring. There was no such thing as a typical day. Neil's work was uh, also particularly difficult because urban Saigon, quite different from the Air America bases in remote areas of like Laos and Thailand. It was difficult to go anywhere in the city because of the influx of refugees from the communist-controlled countryside, which in turn caused massive traffic jams. Uh, Trips to and from the airport sometimes took one or two hours out of the day, uh, adding to the irritability factor when Neil was forced to wait another hour or more in a hot cockpit while in line for takeoff. In Neil's own words, daily life, not anything like the movies. He said, according to the movie representation of Airmen at War, we were gray-suited knights, warriors all, who climbed out into our steeds of shining aluminum, blasted off into the blue skies in support of the battle with godless communist hordes. Great rhetoric, perhaps 
but the romanticized viewpoint could not have been further from the truth. In reality, when our intrepid birdman arrived at an airfield, he was often already dusty and wrinkled from his ride on the potholed road to the field. He was still bone-tired from the previous day's flying and in a bad mood after mosquitoes. Feasted on him, and he waited in the dark for the Volkswagen bus that transported the crew to the plane. In many cases, a searing hangover, coupled with gut-twisting diarrhea, also made our night a bit snappy. I like the way this guy writes. Uh, the crew bus uh, dropped pilots off at Operations, a gray, uninspiring two-story building. Right, so you ride for an hour or two in traffic on a fucking bus, get dropped off in this gray building. 1965, as Air America's missions expanded, they received new pilots almost daily, and the facility is very crowded. Pilots got their daily flight schedule on the second floor. Most of them went to the standby room, uh, just where there was always a, a pot of coffee Neil described as vile. But according to Neil, no matter how bad it was, everyone wanted a cup. Even though, uh, you know, when it was dumped onto an already troubled gastrointestinal system, it would send the lower intestine into violent spasms. And to make matters worse, the only restrooms were in the back of the building on the second floor. I wonder how many of these guys shit themselves on the planes. Uh, the actual missions, super dangerous. On the morning of July 5th, 1965, Neil said he waited to depart Saigon from the midfield intersection of the north-south runway, which was crossed by uh, a main runway. Uh, Neil could barely hear, uh, you know, the rumble of two R95 radial engines on either side of the cockpit of his Beechcraft, a twin-engine plane built in the U.S. during World War II. When the tower cleared for takeoff, an Air America Beechcraft in front of him. He watches it roll until the tail comes off the ground. Then the pilot clears C-46 commando transport plane to his right on runway 25. Now clears eight, one of those planes. As he begins his roll, Neil expects to get his own clearance for departure, but then he hears an expletive on the radio. He looks at the Beechcraft that have been cleared, notices that it's flying, but in trouble and dropping. As though in slow motion, it drifts down and just crashes. So the plane going right in front of him just fucking crashes uh, outside the airport into the courtyard of a Catholic church. Dust, debris, rise, uh, obscure the airplane. He thinks the pilot has managed to make a survivable crash landing, but suddenly a ball of flame blossoms over the crash site. The fucking plane explodes, no survivors. It's a tragedy, but Neil, given no time to process it, after emergency vehicles clear the tarmac on the way to the crash site, air control tower quickly resumes business as usual. Another C-46 clear for takeoff on runway 25. As soon as it passes the intersection, the tower clears Neil to go on the north-south runway. He begins his takeoff despite having just watched a fucking plane explode just minutes before that was going on the same runway. According to a later accident investigation, uh, some witnesses claimed to have seen an orange flash under the ill-fated aircraft as it cleared the end of the runway. The investigators surmised that it came from what's, what was called a sky horse, a simple piece of pipe implanted in the ground with a charge at the bottom and debris, nuts, rocks, rocks, etc., placed on top. You know, Viet Cong hiding nearby probably set it off as, as the plane passed over it, you know, making it, uh, you know, a matter of luck that it hadn't been Neil's plan, plane exploding that day. Could have been him right behind. Aside from terrifying life as an Air America pilot, also very interesting, in Neil's own words, with the escalation of Air America operations, we were getting more airplanes every week and hiring several hundred pilots, which turned us into a sea of interesting characters. Some were the hee-haw funny kind. I used to love watching hee-haw. Uh, others were the volatile punch you in the mouth for fun type a few were one notch from being skid row alcoholics there were also plenty of normal people but some of them just didn't stay very long most of the new pilots came from the retired or ex-military group civilian trained pilots were the minority neil was the assistant manager of flying and in charge of several aircraft programs a job description that included training the new arrivals and he knew uh, that an important part of training was weeding out pilots who didn't have what it took to carry out dangerous high stress missions Neil kept up the pressure on trainees until they could smell their fear, uh, wanted to see if they could cope with situations he put them in that uh, would likely mirror what they would see in battle. 
Those who passed his training received a handshake, set of wings with a star on top from Air America. Uh, the losers, uh, you know, usually went home, the ones who didn't pass the training. Neil harassed his trainees. Sometimes he'd give a new pilot a body bag with the pilot's name on it, or would put pictures of burnt crash victims on their desk. It, it is fascinating to me. Like, I think this is a good thing to do just to, you know, like make sure these people are ready. But it is funny to me that I, I feel like if that happened today and people found out about it, there'd be so much outrage. Oh my God. How could they do that? Why can't they just be nice in war? Uh, the reaction would give him a glimpse into the ability to handle the unusual. One trainee was a guy named uh, Neil called Tom. Didn't say his real name uh, in later accounts of all this. He said Tom was a short, pudgy pilot in his late 40s with a dusting of gray in his hair. He'd recently retired from the Air Force, wanted to make some, quote, big bucks to add to his retirement check. In the briefing room with three others before the first training flight uh, in country, Neil noticed a tremble in this guy's hands as he kept smoothing the chart laying across his knees. So he's like, all right, I got to test this guy. He finds out in, in the air, Tom is not as skilled as he thinks he is. Uh, Neil not going to take it easy on him. One training flight uh, takes Neil, Tom, other trainees from Saigon to an old Michelin rubber plantation, about 65 miles north near Cambodia. They do a couple touch and go landings on the airstrip at the plantation, then fly to an area above the Mekong Delta on the Cambodian border. Uh, there, the group, does. Uh, they do full stop landings. Each trainee does a, a turn during takeoffs and landings at all the locations. In route, Tom now at the controls is telling Neil how he used to be a chief Czech pilot in the Air Force and could help Neil lay out a similar program here. Neil just keeps smiling and nodding, keeping in mind the possibility of ground, ground fire. Neil asks Tom to give him a 60-degree bank turn to the left. Tom looks over his shoulder to check for traffic as he rolls into the turn while he's looking out the window. Neil reaches down, shuts off the fuel to the left engine, takes a little wire for the fuel line to be uh, uh, to empty. So Neil starts to uh, get on him to tighten the turn, pull some Gs, increase the gravitational force in the plane, but this time he has it honked in good and tight and then the left engine quits. The sudden shock from the drag of the now windmilling propeller, propeller spinning on its own without power from the engine, rolls them partially inverted, mainly because Tom doesn't react fast enough to this unexpected event. During his ensuing struggle to regain control, Neil moves the fuel selector valve back to the on position, which goes unnoticed by Tom. Just as he gets the plane leveled, uh, the left engine bursts back to life, uh, swivels the plane in the other direction now. What happened, Neil asked, knowing full well what happened. Uh, engine quit, Tom wheezed through a sharp intake of air. Wonder why? Maybe water in the gas? Asked Neil. Uh, I guess so. Let's not do any more steep turns, Tom says. All right, Tom, let's do a power on stall straight ahead then, Neil commands. He had some more tricks up his sleeve. He begins pulling the nose up into a stalling angle when Neil slips his hand down between the seats onto the elevator trim wheel, device that helps the pilot keep the plane at a constant speed and angle, and begins to, to roll a full nose up. As the speed bled off and the elevator control pressure became looser, Tom couldn't feel what Neil was doing. The plane shuddered. Tom dropped the nose to recover from the stall while applying full power to the engines. The resultant propeller blast now hits uh, fully deflected uh, hits the fully deflected trim tab, which in turn slams the hand wheel back into this guy's gut uh, with a little help from Neil's right hand on the side of the control column. This makes the nose pitch up violently. Tom's eyes start to bug out. He's still oblivious to anything Neil is doing. So as the aircraft enters a second stall in about a 45-degree nose-up angle, Neil shoves in full left rudder, and this causes the machine to rotate in a neat snap roll, right? Neil then takes control, levels the airplane, releases the controls back to Tom, and uh, says, oh, man, that was pretty neat. Uh-huh, he replies, the elevator jammed. Uh, we better let the wrench benders know about that little problem. For now, we just won't do any more of those. Tom seems a little more than nervous now as they enter a traffic pattern. Neil then places his left arm over the back of his seat, not in a gesture of friendliness, as Tom thought, but to get his hand by the circuit breaker panel. And he plucks out some circuit breakers for the flaps and the landing gear motors. Jesus Christ. Neil sounds like a fucking lunatic. I don't know that I would enjoy working with Neil, but maybe he was doing this shit to uh, save lives, right? Better for him to scare you off than for you to end up dead, I guess. 
or I could just, I don't know, kill you both during the training. Uh, now they approach a runway. Neil urges Tom to make a tight approach, get the plane on the ground as soon as possible. Eager to comply, Tom flips the landing gear handle down, pulls off some power, rolls in to close, uh, close to the runway. Just to add to all the fuckery, Neil calls out, hey, Tom, they're shooting at us over here on the right, which they weren't. The whites of Tom's eyes expand. He slams the flap lever full down, pulls more power off, whips into a final approach. Uh, without the landing gear and flaps down for drag, hard to slow an airplane down as it's losing altitude. By the time Tom gets to the approach, uh, end of the runway, he has to pull the throttles all the way back. They're still high and fast. People are yelling at him now, Tom, you dipshit, go around before you fucking pull us into the dirt. Uh, other trainees yelling at him where he's going to crash land. Tom suddenly realizes now Neil had been screwing with him the whole time. He's embarrassed. Neil hopes he understood how important it was to be a very good pilot in Air America, not just brag about being a good pilot and pick up a check. You had to be able to handle crazy shit like that, I guess, and keep your cool if you didn't want to end up dead or end up as a POW in some torture prison camp. Uh, Tom would uh, actually end up doing a good job and eventually make captain. So, so good on Tam, good on Tom to handle all that shit. I don't, I don't know that I would. I would like to think I would, or I would fucking shit myself. I don't know. Uh, Neil Hansen didn't just train pilots. He also flew on covert missions. Here's one before uh, we return to the timeline. Uh, once he was asked by a superior, if he, and this is just interesting to see the kind of things Air America would do. He's asked if he was uh, be interested in taking a Beechcraft on a black flight, a secret flight to what was called the Ranch, a secret operation at a Thai Air Force base, uh, 145 miles northwest of Bangkok. The job was to get a guy out of Vietnam into Thailand without going through the proper channels. It was made very clear that Neil was not even supposed to look at this secret passenger. The embassy would call as soon as he left from downtown in a car. Neil was ordered to just sit in the cockpit with the door closed until this person knocked after climbing in. And that would signal him to crank up and go. Uh, they file a legitimate flight plan with Bangkok. Then just before letting down uh, you know, into Bangkok, Neil was supposed to announce he was diverting to an alternate location, that secret Air Force base. U.S. Embassy officials in Saigon, uh, or, well, actually not the secret part, they were supposed to divert to the Thai Air Force Base, but then they were really going to go to the secret part. U.S. Embassy officials in Saigon assure Neil, no one's going to get upset uh, over a minor change in plans when he tells, you know, Bangkok. Uh, they would send someone from the embassy to make sure everything went smoothly, uh, which it wouldn't. Uh, as soon as embassy calls, says that the passenger's on his way, Neil does as they requested. He sits in the cockpit, he waits and waits. He said the cockpit temperature rose to over 130 degrees Fahrenheit before the cargo arrived. Said he was starting to see little floating spots in his vision. Was about to pass out before this person got there. Black car with curtained windows. Windows finally drives under the ramp, pulls up out of sight behind the airplane. The knock comes. Mister, you know the mystery person is in, and then Neil takes off. After the flight, the passenger gets off, walks to another curtained black car. Neil refuels, cranks up halfway down the runway when two jeep loads of Thai soldiers block the taxiway, raise their rifles. He's detained in a Thai jail for a week. Can't fucking tell him why he's really there. His cover stories, he just got lost. And then finally, some uh, people behind the scenes make some arrangements and he gets to uh, go back to Saigon. And he never figured out the identity of that mystery passenger, has no idea who he transported. Uh, Neil Hansen left Air America October 1973. Today, he travels the country on the speaking circuit, recounting stories uh, about his days of, uh, you know, uh, Air America days to military, civic, and veterans groups. So a little cool personal uh, story in there. Back to our timeline now. After getting to meet one of Air America's, you know, top out in the field employees. Let's meet a few other of Air America's finest. July 14th, 1965, Navy pilot Don Bacher and his bombardier, navigator Don Eaton, Don and Don, double Dons, double Dons, uh, given a mission to fly an A-6 intruder and, a, and bomb a loop in a part of the Ho Chi Minh Trail. I roll in over the target, push the bomb button, Bacher said. All five 500-pound bombs release, but one prematurely detonates because we were armed with old World War II fuses. 
The blast destroys the starboard engine, causing a hydraulic failure, followed by a massive fuel leak and a fire. So that's not fun. The wingman uh, joined up with the crippled plane, radios, you're on fire, eject, eject. It was the first A-6 downed in the Vietnam War. Eaton ejected first, followed by Bakker. Um, Eaton was a small man, 135 pounds, Bakker said. I was 200 pounds and floated down like a lead balloon. I passed him on the way down and the chute was not steerable. The two were separated by wind, landed in a hostile area of Laos. Eaton landed on one side of a hill, Bakker on the other. They ended up about two miles apart. Eaton ran uh, east down hills, cliffs over streams away from pursuers, trying to kill him. In the middle of the night under a full moon, Bakker climbs through jungle terrain to the top of the mountain to avoid enemy patrols. At dawn, he uses a fucking mirror to try and flash his position. No GPS little signal. Doesn't have an iPhone. You know, fi- find my phone. Guys, I'm over here. He had a little mirror. Uh, boxed in by the enemy, Bakker watches several air rescue attempts turn back by, or get turned back by fire. Uh, Phil Goddard of Air America with Bob Davis as his backup. They're the first responders to the call to rescue these downed airmen. Goddard's helicopter uh, was hit by 13.7 automatic machine gun fire, penetrated the fuel cell, sent fuel leaking out of the helicopter when they first try, can't hover, can't, uh, had to keep going forward to keep the fuel out of the exhaust stack, also takes a hit in one of the blades and has to return to base. Limps back to base, followed by Davis since the mission required two helicopters. Goddard then goes back out. He just got fucking shot up. Uh, in a U.S. Air Force CH-3 chopper to direct another military pilot to the location of Bakker and Eaton. And these men would end up needing backup in the form of a pilot named Sam Jordan. From, for six years, Sam Jordan flew helicopters for the U.S. Marine Corps. 1961, he had answered an advertisement for pilots by an upstart airline called Air America. Didn't know where they were flying, uh, who owned the company, just wanted to get back out there. During his 14-year stint with Air America, he flew into Laos carrying medical supplies, other supplies to refugees in remote mountain villages, uh, flew fixed-wing planes along the Ho Chi Minh Trail, scanned for radio signals from the ground, and dropped provisions from the sky. Performing high-altitude rescue missions in enemy territory in Huey helicopters was going to be harder than that. Others tried to rescue Don Bakker, including the Air Force Jolly Green Giant, two T-28s, a Caribou, and Sky Raiders, but they kept having to withdraw because conditions weren't right. I kept getting fired on. That's when Jordan's told to fly his Air America UH-34D into the fray, July 15th, 1965. Why me, he wondered. Because it's your turn, Sam, and you have a knack for always coming back, was the answer. He was told to top off with fuel, but he ignored that. Since the target was at 4,300 feet you know, altitude, he, know, he knew he could not make a rescue at that altitude with the fuel, uh, full tank. So Jordan then went on to recover Eden from a grass-covered ridge near a highway. Eden had injured his hands upon ejection, couldn't grip the rescue sling, a.k.a. the horse collar, so Jordan had to hover low enough for him to be able to literally dive into the open doors. Fucking nuts. Uh, Bakker finally spotted. The 100-foot cable is lowered, but it gets caught in some trees, has to be pulled up, dropped again, you know, while waiting to get fired on. This is happening. Bakker, uh, Bakker stretched to hook his arm into the horse collar instead of his body. The rescue took place again, you know, 4,300 feet, just as Sam had predicted. If he'd launched with full fuel, would have been way too heavy to hover at that altitude. He made a quick calculation, got the engine to allow him to hover there for about 30 minutes, at which point Bakker managed to climb inside the craft, right? Just a half an hour of just hoping you're not going to get fucking blown out of the sky. Uh, Eaton and Bakker then transported quickly back to base. All I remember is shaking hands with Sam, Bakker would later say. Didn't even get his name at the time. He just said, get out of here. <laughs> Jesus Christ. Once at the base, these men were bandaged up, offered scotch and beer, then flown to Thailand for de- debriefing. Bakker made sure to write down the name of his rescuers. Uh, luckily, Bakker survived the war, went on to a distinguished career and leadership positions in the Navy, graduated from the U.S. Naval Test Pilot School, uh, tested naval aircraft. 1988, he assumed command of the Naval Air Test Center 
at the Naval Air Station Patuxent uh, pa River in Maryland. 1991, he became vice commander of Naval Air Systems Command in Washington, D.C., and served there until his retirement in 1995 after 39 years, eight months in the U.S. Navy. Damn. Received two Legions of Merit, a Defense Meritorious Service Medal, Meritorious Service Medal, six Air Medals, two Navy Commendation Medals with Combat uh, 5, the Combat Action Ribbon, a Navy Unit Commendation, the Meritorious Unit Commendation, the Navy Expeditionary Medal, and several Vietnam decorations. And he had two daughters. Uh, after he was res- rescued, uh, two daughters before he went to Vietnam, ended up had four more kids afterwards, ended up with six kids, 11 grandkids. Uh, Don Eaton also went on to a distinguished naval career, uh, been serving as a senior lecturer at the Naval Postgraduate School since 1994, when he retired after spending more than 36 years in the Navy. In total, he flew 66 combat missions. On July 15, 2010, Eaton and Becker celebrated the 46th anniversary of their rescue and a new lease on life made possible by Air America pilots. So pretty cool rescue mission. 1971, three US, three U.S. journalists make it to Laos and they find the secret base and they attempt to expose Long Cheng uh, to the international public. Their discovery, however, does not make front page news. The U.S. military informs U.S. citizens it's just conducting a humanitarian mission over in Laos. Over 2 million tons of bombs have been dropped for a humanitarian mission. Uh, various media members, likely paid off by the CIA, fabricate stories about U.S. building hospitals and providing development aid to Laos. So the U.S. historically not above propaganda either, which is so fucked up. I hope we never fucking go there again. I mean, but it makes me wonder, like, what are we doing right now? Right? I, I mean, I hate Putin because of a lot of propaganda he spews. Are we fucking doing that? God, I hope it's no, nowhere near what's going on in Russia. Oh, man. I don't think it is because we're still connected to the rest of the world's websites. That's where it gets really problematic when you get shut off to what's being reported in other countries. But what stories here are being massaged? What narratives being shoehorned into something other than the truth? Uh, Not fun to think about. Finally, four years later, 1975, the CIA leaves Laos after the Patet Lao win their civil war with the fall of Saigon, South Vietnamese capital, falls to communists, right? April 30th, 1975. CIA, Air America had been in Laos the whole time the Vietnam War had been going on and for years earlier, right? Since 1953, 22 years. One of America's finest, most iconic moments was evacuating American and Vietnamese civilians after Saigon fell. Famous photograph shows an Air America helicopter atop an apartment building as a long line of people wait to board it. Brian K. Johnson, former Air America helicopter pilot, past president of the Air America Association, would later say that flight crews raced to be the first to pick up downed military personnel in an incredibly dangerous and chaotic situation. Uh, The Cold War military operations in Laos that the CIA was part of for so many years left the nation seriously battered. By 1975, 10% of the population in Laos, or 200,000 civilians and members of the military, were dead. Twice as many wounded, 750,000, a full quarter of the population, had become refugees, including fucking Laotian Chuck Norris, General Vang Pao himself. What a nightmare. Declassified documents show that 728 Americans died in Laos, most of whom were working for the CIA. The secret war in Laos, or the Laos Civil War, to many who lived through it, set a precedent for a more militarized CIA with the power to engage in, you know, big-time covert conflicts around the world, heavily militarized conflicts. Uh, Even after pulling out of South Vietnam in 75, there was a brief attempt to keep Air America presence in Thailand. Uh, That fell through, and Air America was dissolved June 30th, 1976. Air Asia, the company that held all of the uh, Air America assets, later purchased by Evergreen International Airlines. This is kind of interesting. Evergreen, based about 30 miles outside of Portland, Oregon, in McMinnville, would go on to work for the CIA, 
So really, Air America does kind of keep going in a different form. Uh, you know, um, they become involved in covert CIA missions in the Middle East and in Central and South America. All proceeds from the sale of Air America, which was estimated between $20 and $25 million, returned to the U.S. Treasury. Uh, then former Air America employees released unceremoniously with no accolades and no benefits, even for those who suffered long-term disabilities, nor death benefits for families of employees killed in action. Technically, all contracts with the U.S. Air Force required workers' compensation insurance, but the CIA didn't make it easy for pilots to get those benefits, and that is so fucked up. Very frustrating to hear. Many disabled pilots ultimately compensated under the Federal Longshoremen's Act after lengthy battles, though, with CIA bureaucrats who denied their connection to the airline for years. According to Tony Colson, one pilot, we couldn't tell you people actually who we were working for because it was all classified. So nobody knew it. How can you have any retirement benefits? I said, well, that's a catch-22. And that is such bullshit. Like, what a stab in the back. If the CIA can make fake companies, they can also create fake backstories as a front for legitimate retirement benefits. So that's so shady and disappointing. Uh, Jumping to the 1980s now, the CIA's interest in opium continues after the conclusion of the Vietnam War. The CIA goes on to support uh, Mujahideen rebels in Afghanistan in the name of fighting the Soviet army. More Cold War shit in the 1980s. Osama bin Laden once joined uh, Mujahideen forces in Pakistan fighting against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. Bin Laden would be a great suck subject, by the way. According to a 2009 report from the U.S. Institute of Peace, the CIA began to turn a blind eye to the uh, Mujahideen's uh, involvement in the opium trade. So much more heroin flows from Afghanistan onto the streets of America, right? Leading to more drug war arrests and more overdoses. Uh, 1990 now, the movie Air America, starring Mel Gibson, Robert Downey Jr., premieres. Mel and Rob played two pilots working at Laos during the Vietnam War. When the protagonists discover their aircraft is being used by government agents to smuggle heroin, uh, they have to avoid being framed as drug smugglers. The publicity for the film, advertised as a lighthearted buddy movie, implied a tone that differed greatly from the actual film, which included uh, serious themes such as uh, an anti-war message, focus on the opium trade, uh, negative portrayal of Royal Laotian General, uh, Laotian General uh, Vang Pao. Air America received mostly negative reviews from critics. The film review in New York Times by Karen James saw the film as a flawed star vehicle. Uh, this muddled film about a secret CIA project in Laos in 1969 fails on every possible level as an action film, a buddy film, a scenic travelogue, and even, sad to say, as a way to flaunt Mel Gibson's appeal. Uh, those who study Air America's operations in Southeast Asia, or who did study, say the film not that accurate. William Leary, uh, that history professor, would say, the film depicts a CIA uh, man as having the opium processed into heroin in a factory just down the street from the favorite bar of Air America's pilots. The Asian general in return supplies men to fight the war, plus a financial kickback to CIA. Ultimately, we learn that the communist versus anti-communist war in Laos was merely a facade for the real war, which was fought for control of the area's opium fields. Other scholars disagree with that uh, assessment, though. Larry Collins, writing an opinion piece for the New York Times in 93, titled The CIA Drug Connection is as old as the agency, noted that the CIA has had its hand in the international drug trade since the Korean War in 1950 when they traded weapons and heroin in exchange for intelligence. The practice continued as the Vietnam War started in 1955, and Collins noted that the CIA appeared to have one, interest in mind, one primary interest in mind, the cultivation of the opium poppy. But what about those who were actually there? What do they think? Well, Ron Rickenbach, former official at the U.S. Agency for International Development, served in Laos during the 60s. Uh, He says that the uh, soldiers involved, they initially believed what they were doing was in the best interest of America, even if it meant being involved in some not-so-desirable aspects of the drug traffic business. Uh, 
He said these people were willing to take up arms. We needed to stop the red threat. And people believed that in that vein, you know, we made, you know, certain compromises or certain trade-offs for a larger good. Rickenbach added, growing opium was a natural agricultural enterprise for these people. And they'd been doing it for many years before the Americans ever got there. When we got there, they just continued to do so. Fred Platt, a former pilot in Laos, uh, said uh, that the incentives the Hmong tribesmen had to take part in uh, in the trade uh, had to had to take part in the trade had to give had, they had to give them incentives is what he's trying to say here. Uh, Platt said when a farmer raised a crop of opium, what he got for his year's worth of work was the equivalent of thirty five to forty U S dollars. That's crazy. The amount of opium uh, refined into morphine base, then into morphine, then into heroin, uh, would appear on the streets of New York. And that $35 crop of opium would be worth $50,000, $60,000, $100,000 in 1969, maybe a million dollars today. Man, 2016, President Barack Obama becomes the first sitting U.S. president to visit Laos. He pledges an additional $90 million in aid to remove unexploded ordnance on top of the $100 million that the U.S. had spent previously doing that. The work of cleaning out unexploded bombs from the ocean soil continues to this day. Uh, as far as we know, Air America does not exist anymore today. Uh, but you can bet the CIA is cooking up other stuff as we speak. Now, with that, let's pop out and look back at this long and secret, I know a lot of information, uh, history today. Good job, soldier. You've made it back. Barely. All right, so that was a lot <laughs> yeah, of info we just went over. Uh, Bojangles is exhausted. He just fell asleep while looking at his balls for a while. Uh, after sitting in all of this for a few days, uh, what do I think about Air America, the morality of all this, the CIA? Um, you know, I just think it's really, really, really complicated. Uh, I think I would have had a lot more knee-jerk, knee-jerk reactions to a lot of the info we just went over uh, when I was, you know, 20 years younger than I am now. I, I think it's very easy to pull out isolated examples from U.S. Cold War operations, right, uh, wherever, but, uh, you know, for today in the Southeast Asia in the 50s, 60s, 70s, you know, and just have a reaction of like, oh my God, that's fucking terrible. How can we do that? That's inexcusable. There's no justification for ever dropping that many bombs. No justification for being part of a conflict uh, that far from our borders that left so many innocent civilians dead. I do understand because of that why people protested Vietnam, not even saying they shouldn't have protested. I understand why people were outraged to find out, uh, you know, the U.S., uh, what, what, like what hand they had in Laos and in other anti-communist military struggles in Southeast Asia. And elsewhere, you know, around the world. A lot of horrible shit happened over there. U.S. responsible for a lot of it. A lot of death. A lot of innocent death. War is hell. But I also understand that global politics are very fucking complicated. And that all of this can get very morally gray and murky when you look at it. How murky it looks changes depending on which angle you're looking at it from, I think. Right? There's just no white knights and shining armor in any of this. That's not real life. This isn't some old western. You know, where there's the good guys and the white cowboy hats and then the bad guys and the black cowboy hats. You know, one always just is fights for truth and justice. The other is always thieving. You know, it's super easy to root for one side because they're just righteous. You know, the other side's uh, evil and oppressive. I'm aware that there are great people who are communists, who just want a world where resources are shared in an equitable fashion. A world where there are only the haves, not the haves and the have-nots. And I think that's a beautiful dream. And I think there are beautiful dreamers dreaming it. Right? I'm also aware that there are terrible people who are pro-democracy capitalists who want to become wealthy or maintain their wealth at the expense of others. People who enjoy being haves, probably partially because it makes them feel superior to the have-nots. So how do you judge what Air America did in Southeast Asia? How do you judge what the CIA has done around the world? 
subjectively. I don't think there's any other way. Uh, when you pull back and look at all this globally, right, the morality changes. You're going to view it differently depending on what you believe uh, in ideologically. Knowingly pursuing military uh, objectives that you know will lead to mass civilian casualties, right, that can easily read only as evil when I think it's looked at uh, up close. But when you zoom back out, way out, knowing that, yes, many innocents will die, but their sacrifices will allow many more to experience a monumental increase in fulfillment and freedom and happiness, I think the morality of it all looks very different now. Uh, The morality of all is going to look very different, though, if you're pro-communist as opposed to pro-capitalist. Personally, as someone who is largely uh, pro-capitalist and pro-democracy, even if uh, I would like to see an effective implementation of a socialized base layer of healthcare and higher education, that's a discussion for another day, uh, I think for the most part, the end has justified the means with CIA Cold War activities. And I know some of you are not going to agree. My son Kyle and I had quite the argument about this last night. I'm not going to go into it in depth because I don't want to be unfair to his point of view, but he uh, he did not. He strongly disagreed with me. Uh, my viewpoint, you know, it's just based in my worldview, my values. I personally would rather die than have to live the rest of my days in what I consider to be a fucking communist shithole of a state. For me, being able to chase the American dream uh, of greatly increasing your uh, your fortune, of making enough money to be able to travel the world, help your family achieve their dreams, maybe take your parents on exciting vacations, uh, help put nieces and nephews through college, uh, make enough to donate charities, make enough to know you can retire and enjoy yourself in your golden years if you're lucky enough to make it that far and keep your health. That chase has always been very motivating to me. It has fulfilled me. Before time suck and scared to death brought me a measure of success I only once dreamed of before, the dream of attaining something meaningful, not just artistically, but financially as well, The dream alone motivated me, kept me working hard, grinding for years and years, you know, creating uh, close to two decades before I was able to achieve a tangible piece of the dream. Chasing dreams like that for me goes a long ways towards making life literally worth living. And there is the uh, freedom to dissent that I have uh, spoke about so much that I love so much that is so important to me. Right? I love that I am legally able to create the kind of content I do here, that I can make the fucking craziest, darkest jokes I want. I never think uh, that I'm going to get thrown into uh, prison for doing so. I might lose sponsors, might lose fans, but I'm not going to have the government shut me down. You know, as, as, as much as I uh, love having sponsors, by the way, if they all went away, I'd still have uh, many of you buying tickets to shows, buying t-shirts, subscribing on Patreon. That's so fucking beautiful me to live in a, a form of government in an economy that makes that possible. Right? It lets me make a living, a great living, doing what I love. Uh, and what I love to do requires an enormous amount of freedom. Freedom that I would lose living in a communist state. Looking into communism heavily into many different forms of it. Yeah, it just doesn't allow for that, for a lot of dissent. And then there's religion. You know, uh, if you ever listen to this podcast for any length of time that I'm not religious, you know, I can uh, get pretty frustrated with organized religion. Uh, you know, in this country, it usually comes out as uh, with Christianity. But do know that I love that you can worship anything in America. You can be Catholic, Baptist, Muslim, Hindu, Mormon. You can be fucking Scientologist. Uh, You can be Amish. You can be Jehovah's Witness. You can be a member of a cult I fucking despise. You can be part of the Westboro Baptist Church, right? Be some dirty motherfucker who protests veterans' funerals and slanders and demeans homosexuals. And I fucking hate you. I hate that you do that. But I love that you have the freedom to do that. I despise Alex Jones. I think he's a fucking idiot piece of shit, but I love that you can listen to him. I hate David Icke, but I love that you can buy a ticket to one of his shows or that you can buy his books. I got a couple on the desk here. Uh, Hopefully you know that that's a parody. Uh, I love that you can be so many different things in America for all of our, for all of our faults. What we have here in so many ways is so precious and beautiful. 
And it's taken so much sacrifice, I think, to, to hold on to it. And I fucking love that we fought around the world trying to give this way of life to others. And when I look back at a lot of Cold War fights, covert or, or uh, overt, I see what America was doing is trying to share that dream with millions of others. Uh, was part of the incentive in certain operations possibly making money off the opium trade? Maybe. Uh, yeah, okay, I'm open to that. Primary? I don't think so. That reads as kind of like evil, paranoid conspiracy lore to me. Uh, I do know that money, you know, pushes war around the world. I do understand the military industrial complex. It profits off of wars where countries are ravaged. I know that's horrible. I know the CIA has done shady shit in foreign lands. And there are countless individual examples of CIA actions that are very, they're impossible to morally justify. But overall, what the CIA has done, what Air America was a part of in today's suck, I do think there's a lot of nobility in it, right? Live free or die. Very important to me. Uh, I'm someone who's vaccinated but also someone who opposes legally enforced vaccinations, right? Freedom. I would like the most reasonable amount of freedom we can have uh, before it becomes anarchy, before it tilts into some Mad Max, Lord of the Flies bullshit. Air America, I think, well, yeah, they turned a blind eye to uh, trafficking opium that would lead to uh, a lot of people going to prison, a lot of overdoses, uh, ran by the CIA, the same organization that, uh, you know, has led irresponsible bombing runs all over the fucking place. I think overall, the cause righteous. Right. And it's gray. I know it's gray, but I think it tilts. I think it's uh, at, at the very least the lesser of two evils in the Cold War. And I say all this aware that many of you will will see this very differently. And you might be right. I don't know. Who the fuck am I? I don't have a fucking degree in all this. Uh, something that might be easier to agree on. Uh, what a fucking cool story. Right. A secret airline flying into secret bases uh, secretly without the knowledge of the American public for years as a covert operation run by the CIA. Air America sent pilots to regions all over Southeast Asia as the Korean War and the Vietnam War raged, delivering food, ammunition, supplies, uh, while it also bombed, you know, communist enemies. Air America's fleet, an impressive one, uh, C-130s, DHC-4 Caribou's, Curtis C-46 Commandos, the Douglas DC-6s and more, you know, helicopters including the Bell 47, Bell 204B, Bell 205, Hughes 500D, uh, Sikorsky H-34. These aircraft often marked as civilian transporters, allowing them to uh, enter zones. They wouldn't normally be able to for military operations. By 1962, Air America was moving and extracting troops and personnel from the war zone, as well as providing support for several foreign governments involved in the war. It was transporting refugees, taking photos that would be used to further intelligence information. The airline quickly grew in the 60s, amassed more than 80 aircraft, had more than 300 specialists, mechanics, and more based in Southeast Asia alone. Air America almost certainly smuggled heroin out of northern Laos. Uh, working to help the Hmong people in Laos who were fighting against the communist, uh, you know, Patet Lao, and the Hmong depended on heroin for their livelihoods. And without that income, you know, their cause was basically fucked from the uh, get-go. Also, the CIA might have actively engaged, maybe even profited from this drug smuggling trade. Then after the Vietnam War ended, Air America shut down. In 76, workers laid off, no recognition for their work, no financial assistance. The families of those killed received virtually nothing. For those injured, they faced a long, lengthy battle for insurance to cover their treatment costs. Whenever they tried to get their dues, the CIA simply claimed the airline had never existed. Uh, fucking terrible ending for such an interesting organization, right? Fucking CIA. Not easy to root for in many cases. Again, they're sure as shit not white knights, but ah, but they've also done a lot of things that are very good, I think. Such a mixed bag, right? Uh, might be doing some terrible shit right now, but also probably doing some great shit right now. And also, if they weren't around, I just think about that. If they just weren't around, if you just like, okay, Let's say uh, JFK did want to splinter them into a million pieces. He doesn't get assassinated and they go away. Would the world be better off now without them? Or would it be worse off? 
And that's a good way to view the overall morality of this. I think definitely worse off. Right? If I could go back in a time machine to uh, their 1947 inception, perhaps, I would not want to get rid of them. Right? Because other countries have intelligence agencies. There have been too many other agencies around the world, like the KGB, that they need to fucking do battle with. That the CIA has been needed to keep them in check. And I keep talking around and around about the morality of, I, I don't know, I could keep talking about this for hours. I'll probably not add any fucking new uh, food for thought. I haven't already thrown out. So let's, uh, let's move on now uh, to this week's top five takeaways. I hope at the very least you found this as interesting as I did. Time suck. Top five takeaways. Number one, Air America originally created in 1956 as Civil Air Transport, later bought out by the CIA, renamed Air America. Uh, its mission began with providing support to Chinese nationalists, fighting communist re- rebels. Then when the communists won, Air America transitioned into fighting basically uh, wherever the communists were trying to uh, spread to in Southeast Asia, operating according to the domino theory that when one state falls to communism, others around it will quickly follow. Uh, though Air America's success was limited in terms of helping its anti-communist allies, it definitely did its part to rescue and provide support for both its allies and American soldiers fighting there. And maybe did some more things too. Number two, Air America may have engaged, uh, you know, been engaged in the Laotian, or Laotian opium trade, possibly for over a decade. The official story is that civilians of Laos, uh, whose main cash crop was poppy, were facing severe economic troubles and only outside support for this opium trade would ensure that they had enough resources to fight the communist Patet Lao. Others allege that the CIA didn't just help the economy, but actively traded opium for its own profit. Though, of course, the CIA and some historians who may or may not be funded by the CIA deny this. Number three, Neil Hansen is a fucking G. Hansen, along with countless other Air American pilots, tasked with some incredibly difficult and dangerous missions, flying right into enemy war zones, pretending to be civilian aircraft, uh, picking up mysterious passengers, keeping their mouths shut uh, about what they're really up to when they get fucking thrown into foreign prisons. Number four, CIA still has a long way to go to officially recognize and compensate those who worked for Air America. Because of the heavily secret nature of Air America's operations in Southeast Asia, the CIA could and simply did deny that Air America ever existed leaving its employees without sufficient pensions or medical care for their injuries, which is a really, really dark little, you know, side of this. Uh, five, new info. Number five, did you know that there was another Air America also involved in drug smuggling? Just not one owned by the CIA, but because it was called Air America, let's talk about it here because it's a cool little story. This could be a, sep- uh, a whole separate suck if we wanted to expand this. Uh, the story of this iffy airline begins in the early 1980s when the Reagan administration declared war on drug smuggling in the U.S., Colombian drug cartels were hiring Americans to fly their drugs into the U.S. primarily via stops in Florida. To combat this, a sophisticated network of radar systems were installed throughout Florida and the Gulf Coast. Uh, The government also put up planes in the air, which acted as radar systems to catch even more drug perpetrators. All suspicious airplanes as well as sea vessels were tracked and targeted, and a bunch were caught. Many of those 80s drug smugglers in the U.S. were uh, very flashy. They were based in South Florida, had gold chains, expensive watches. Uh, Authorities able to break down uh, their operations and arrest them pretty easily. Some Miami Vice shit. Fucking coked out, flashy 80s. God, I bet they had so much fun. Uh, One drug smuggler, uh, though, eluded authorities for years, bringing in several billion dollars worth of coke into the U.S. The the man authorities were looking for was Rick Ludges, a businessman, excuse me, not based in Florida, lived in Scranton, Pennsylvania, the other Miami. Uh, no, not exactly uh, the same vibe as Miami. And he brought 10 tons of cocaine into the U.S., more cocaine than any other drug smuggling ring uh, in the U.S. At, at the time he was active. Made himself a fortune, earning millions. And finally, a couple key mistakes led to his discovery and arrest by law enforcement. 
As a, as a young boy, uh, Ludges was obsessed with flying. He obtained his pilot's license before graduating high school. After he graduated from college, he formed his own company called Air America. The company owned a number of small airplanes, earned money by upgrading small planes to more luxurious models. Known for its top-notch quality, business began to thrive, allowed Rick to donate to local charity, befriend politicians, even fly politicians around uh, in his pimped-out airplanes. Uh, Rick did not seem to want to get into the Coke business at first. In 1980, however, a big recession hit, slowed down business for Air America substantially, uh, leading Rick to lay off many of his workers. He hired some new workers who would work for cheaper, quickly finds out many of these new guys uh, have shady histories. They're involved in drug smuggling. One of the workers offers Rick a lot of money if he'll help them smuggle, uh, smuggle drugs in from Colombia. With Air America on the brink of bankruptcy, Rick agrees, uh, taking the step that would turn Air America to, as it was being called now, into one of the biggest drug smuggling rings in American history. Uh, Rick began his drug smuggling by pilot- piloting the drugs from Columbia to the U.S. through Florida, just like the other guys. But as a businessman, he quickly noticed uh, some amateurish mistakes taking place. His workers and clients used drugs themselves, uh, weren't that stable, uh, regularly flew over areas covered with radar and DEA officials. Rick uh, quit after uh, three jobs, but by then, his reputation had made its uh, way to Jorge Ochoa, one of the prominent leaders of a cocaine drug cartel operating in Colombia. And Jorge reached out. Uh, Ochoa offered Rick millions if he could pilot his drugs from Colombia to the U.S. Still desperate for cash, Rick agrees, even when threatened to be killed by Ochoa, if he cheats Ochoa out of his money. Uh, Rick decides that flying to Florida, too dangerous, too many radars, uh, too much surveillance, everything. So he decides to take the drugs from Columbia to Scranton. So random. I love it. Uh, but there was another problem. His plane's fuel tank didn't hold enough fuel to make that trip in one go. And if he stopped, he'd definitely be at risk of getting questioned by authorities. So he modifies a Cessna 310, which can fly for about 900 miles to allow for much more fuel capacity. He does this in a sneaky way, putting fuel reserves in rubber bladders hidden in the nose of the airplane under the cabin floor and by the luggage compartments, restructures the plane to account for the extra weight, cranks up the horsepower, the engine, reinforces the wings and the wheel struts. Inside the plane, Rick installs custom radars to inform him of weather conditions and government air control. Finally, after three months of planning and, you know, pimping this thing out, takes off from Pennsylvania, uh, takes a direct route to Columbia. Rick arrives there 13 hours later, right? One straight flight, loads up his plane with Coke, a shipment of 800 pounds with the weight of the fuel plus the drugs. His plane weighs, uh, you know, 2,000 pounds, far over the plane's recommended weight capacity, but he's upgraded it properly, right? With the extra horsepower and everything, he manages to get the plane airborne on his way back, flies directly to Scranton. About five miles into his flight or five hours into his flight, though, Navy airplane picks him up on radar, starts following him. To ward off this Navy vessel, he flies right into the heart of a nearby storm. The Navy aircraft refuses to follow. Rick loses him. Two hours later, emerges from the storm, continues his flight inland to Scranton. It's right, still is able to make it. And then he delivers about a million dollars, enough drugs to earn himself about a million dollars in cash. The cartel, massively impressed with Rick's operation, makes him do regular runs over the next year. Makes millions. Rick starts thinking about expanding the operation, hires pilots to run trips to Columbia, uh, runs this all with efficiency uh, that he had, uh, the efficiency he'd learned to run his legit business with. No flights were ever lost, crashed. Everything always made it on time. Uh, but then everything came to a halt in 1984. That year, a pilot named Jim Cooper crashed a plane into a car, killed his driver. On the scene, police realized the plane has about 500 pounds of fucking coke. <laughs> so much. Faced with Jesus Christ, is so much. Uh, faced with felony murder charges and life in prison. Uh, Cooper decides to give info about the drug smuggling operation in exchange for a reduced sentence. He rats out Rick and the whole Air America operation, knowing the police are onto him. Rick wires his money to the Cayman Islands, flees there. The DEA appealed to local authorities. The Cayman Islands uh, police cooperate, and eventually Rick is deported 
as an undesirable alien in 1987. Once back into DEA custody, uh, charged with conspiracy to smuggle cocaine, to avoid a 345-year sentence, he gives up the money he earned from the drugs, offers information on the rest of the smuggling team, all of whom would serve time for their roles. For his role, uh, Rick Ludges would sent, be sentenced to eight and a half years in prison. And then once he got out, no idea where he is today. Probably fucking hiding from all the people he ratted on. Uh, it'd be interesting to see if the next Air America, if there is one, ends up also having connections to cocaine. Let's get out of here. Time suck. Top five takeaways. The CIA smuggling drugs and fighting communism. The story of Air America has been sucked. Uh, I would have loved to sit in this subject for a few more weeks, actually. Learn so much more. I'd have more debates with Kyler. Uh, but the next subject, always calling. Uh, hoping I'll get a lot of cool updates and assuming I'll get some corrections, probably pronunciation ones and others, uh, based on this complicated topic. Uh, looking forward to reading them. You can send them to bojangles at timesuckpodcast.com. We pull from those emails to curate the Time Sucker updates every week. Uh, thank you to the Bad Magic Productions team. Thanks to Queen of Bad Magic, Lindsay Cummins. Thanks to the Reverend Doctor, Joe Paisley, possible CIA informant for production. Thanks to Bitelixer for upkeeping uh, on the Time Suck app. Logan, Art Warlock, Keith, definitely CIA informant. Uh, creating the merch at badmagicmerch.com. Uh, running the socials with another CIA plant, Lizzie Enchantress Hernandez. Thanks again to Sophie Evans. Has to be CIA. Leading the research charge this week, making sure, uh, you know, information that I wasn't supposed to reveal was not put in there. Good job, Sophie. She and Olivia Lee, probably another informant. Uh, seriously, two solid young minds working on the suck, making me uh, feel pretty good about the future. Uh, thanks to the All Seen Eyes moderating the Cult of the Curious private Facebook page. Thanks to Beefsteak again, his mod squad running Discord. Uh, a lot of people having fun fun in there. Uh, you can easily link to Time Suck's uh, Discord community via the Time Suck app. Uh, next week, the Space Lizards have spoken about someone else who CIA has, uh, I'm sure, some files on. Uh, we're going to be digging into the Jeffrey Epstein suicide conspiracy. We talked about that pedo piece of shit back in August of 2019. Right? The Ninth Circle Cult and Jeffrey Epstein, an exploration into pedophile rings episode recorded shortly after he died. And we didn't know nearly as much as we do now. So we'll be doing a, a much deeper dive into Epstein's life uh, and into the conspiracies that have bulked up substantially in the years since his death. Not sure exactly what I'm uh, going to cover at this moment. So I'll leave the, the preview a little more vague than usual. But I promise we'll dive deep if the CIA doesn't kill me. And uh, I'm sure it'll be very interesting. Uh, so now let's move on to this week's Time Sucker updates where I'm sure there is more interesting information ahead. I know there is because I, I curated it and I, I put it in there. Updates. Get your Time Sucker updates. Going to start off with the physician-assisted suicide update from Grim, uh, Grim Reaper assistant manager Joe Morsi. My mouth is shot right now. I'm trying to do all those Southeast Asian pronunciations. Uh, Joe writes, Gloria Suckmaster and Time Suck team. I was looking at the news last night and saw that Oregon has agreed to end the residency rule for medically assisted suicide and is encouraging other states to do the same. This is a settlement following a lawsuit in which the residency requirement was found unconstitutional. Hopefully this will offer more families better options than what they may have in more socially conservative states. This is certainly fitting timing for your excellent suck last week. Well, that's very nice. Uh, thanks, uh, and link was included. Thanks for all of you, or what all of you and the team do every week, Space Dummy Joe. Well, Joe, thanks for sending that OregonLive.com link. Great update. Yeah, after reading it, yeah, you no longer have to be a state resident of Oregon to die via medically assisted suicide in Oregon. So hail Oregon, you know, providing a, a respite for more people in pain, providing mercy for those who need it most. So hail Nimrod Joe. Yeah, that's a, that's a great, great update. 
I'm glad to happy to happy to get the word out. Anyone hearing it, you know, at least there's a an Oregon option for you if you're a U.S. citizen now. Uh, pig, whether you live there or not, you know, pig fucking sucker. A great meat sack, Dan Koenig, now has an update spawned by a previous update. He writes, "What's up, Bing Bong?" <laughs> I uh, was listening to the Kevorkian episode, and one of the Time Sucker updates about Sandy Hook reminded me of this. A handful of years ago, I was working in the architectural industry, and uh, my company got selected to help design the new Sandy Hook school. That's so cool. Uh, the existing school was still there with plywood covering the windows that were shot out creepy for sure. We arrived, met up with the architect, a few people from the town, and a security consultant. If you've never been there or seen pictures, the school sits in kind of a bowl with small hills surrounding it on three sides. First thing the dude from the security company says is we can put towers on the east, west, and north to keep an eye on things and then fence in everywhere else. <laughs> to which my boss said, it's an elementary school, not a fucking prison. To my, pretty cool boss. To my knowledge, that was the last time that security company was part of the design team. I bet. Uh, I will say that the new design was made specifically to maximize the amount of time it takes a person to go from classroom to classroom, exclusive of fire exits. That's very cool. Another connection is that my mom worked with the stepmother of the shooter. Fuck that guy. He doesn't deserve name recognition. And after it happened, she never came back to work. Anyway, as Garfield instilled in my brain, I hate Mondays, but I do thoroughly enjoy Monday mornings and afternoons because I can listen to your podcast on the way into and from work. There's no better way to start a week than gleefully listening to stories about pig fucking, throat fucking, (laughs) soft pedophile dicks, and eating poop. (laughs) Uh, I hate that that's all true. I kind of like it actually. Uh, Have a good one, Dan. Uh, Well, thank you for that update, Dan. And uh, man, that poor stepmom, what a tragedy she ended up involved in. Uh, And that's so cool about the design. You know, so sad that designs like that are needed, but so impressive that we're able to adapt like we do. You know, as much as I kind of shit on humanity sometimes, we're pretty resilient and adaptive species overall. That is impressive. Uh, Enjoy whatever future debauchery we have coming down the pipe. Who knows what some future serial killers are going to be fucking on the suck. Uh, gonna end the updates this week uh, with a powerful tale of overcoming adversity. Get your fucking tissues ready. It is allergy season. Kick-ass motherfucker, Cody Webb writes, Dan, I've listened to your comedy since I was 13. I'm now 24, and uh, you have been a bigger part of my life than I could have ever put into words, but I will try now. When I was 12, I was an active drug addict, primarily using opioids, benzos, and beginning my usage with cocaine. My father tried to kill my mother uh, and I when I was young, Um, and ultimately killed himself. Later in life, I was abused in all ways that you can be abused by my mother's boyfriend from ages 9 to 11. We left, and I was angry, so very angry. Soon after, I began using drugs to cope, and man, did it stick. From 12 to 19, I was a drug addict, angry, lashing out at anyone and anything I could. I'll spare you the details to keep this as short as I can. I say all that to say during that time in my life, you were one of the only lights at the end of the tunnel. There were countless nights that I would lay in bed awake trying to talk myself in any of my life to save my family and myself the everlasting agony of the terrible cage I felt I was trapped in. But I would always turn on your comedy, later your podcast. You always managed to make me laugh even in moments that I wanted to die. When I overdosed the first time, 2016, I listened to Time Suck the first chance I could and you brought me peace. When I went to my second treatment center, we were allowed to have an hour every day to listen to music, podcasts, etc. cetera. Uh, I always chose your podcast or stand-up. Your talks on Time Suck about being strong, uh, continuing to keep on keeping on, help me to keep on keeping on. You sharing stories about yourself, other meat sacks, help me to know I wasn't alone. Uh, you've done so much more for me than you'll ever know, and I can uh, do nothing to repay you except thank you dearly. I'm proud and happy to say that I've just passed five years clean and sober. Although I still drink, that was never a problem for me. 
I'm happily engaged to the most amazing woman I could have ever asked for. In fact, we went to see you in 2019. She'll be with me in a few weeks at your Raleigh show. Although she loves the comedy, the podcasts aren't her vibe. LOL. I'm surprised it's as many people's vibes as it is. Uh, I have a great job as a foreman for a concrete company here in Eastern North Carolina. Overall, my life is now worth living. I'm sorry for the long email. Uh, Don't be. And if you want to read it on the podcast, go ahead. I want people to hear how impactful you've been on my life. You're a genuine dude, and I'm truly grateful for who you are. Hail Nimrod. Fuck giving up. Most of all, keep on sucking. With my deepest appreciation, Cody Webb. Well, God damn, Cody. Uh, Putting some pollen in that message. Firing up the allergies. I luckily had a uh, preview rate to get some of it out of my system. Uh, My wife, Lindsay, read your message uh, first. It really got her allergies going. Uh, Man, good on you, Cody. Man, you could be a fucking motivational speaker with your story. Like, I'm not joking. Uh, Your story is so beautiful. So inspiring, such a fire inside of you, clearly that you refuse to let the world blow out when you, uh, you know, had some real bad storms blow through your life when you were so, so young. And that shows so much strength, so much character. Now you're getting married to someone who's clearly wonderful, someone you clearly love. Uh, I bet a walk and safe space for you. Uh, I would tell you to enjoy the fuck out of every good day you're having right now, but uh, you don't need to hear that. You're already doing that. So just keep on being you, Cody Webb. Keep on letting that fire burn. Man, your message uh, is it's powerful. Hail Nimrod, you beautiful fucking bastard. I'll see you and your lady in North Carolina. Next time, suckers. I needed that. We all did. Thanks again for listening to another Bad Magic Productions podcast, Meat Sacks. Uh, please don't head over to Asia this week to battle communism. Uh, for the moment, it doesn't appear that the red is spreading. So just hang back. Keep an eye on things. Keep on sucking. Add Magic Productions. Joe, you ready to record? Yeah, one second, one second. Okay, man, I'm gonna come on in. Oh, yeah, come on in. Yeah. Hey, what's up, man? Right after you. Okay, cool. Yeah, cool, cool, cool. Gotcha. I'm just gonna shut the door, all right? Okay, cool. Okay. Okay, so CIA. Gonna be talking about the CIA. Something feels. Something just feels off in here. Something's different on the. Hey! Fucking Woody! Goddamn Woody's a CIA plant, Joe! We're gonna have to burn him! Yeah, yeah, him! Fuck him! Fucking Woody! BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Good morning. Maybe it's a brand new day. Experience a different tomorrow with Norwegian Cruise Line. Book today and get 50% off your cruise to Alaska, Europe, and beyond. 
Plus, everyone can enjoy their vacation with free unlimited open bar, free specialty dining, and more. Visit ncl.com, call your travel advisor, or 1-888-NCL-CRUISE. Offer ends soon. Norwegian Cruise Line, ships registry the Bahamas and USA. Restrictions apply. The rest of my life gonna start today. Oh.